The following is a conversation with Stephen Wolfram, his third time on the podcast. He's a computer scientist, mathematician, theoretical physicist, and the founder of Wolfram Research, a company behind Mathematica, Wolfram Alpha, Wolfram Language, and the new Wolfram Physics Project. This conversation is a wild technical roller coaster ride through topics of complexity, mathematics, physics, computing, and consciousness. I urge you to come along for this wild ride and hold on, like the title and the lyrics of the beautiful Tom Waits song says, hold on. I think this is what this podcast is becoming, a wild ride. Some episodes are about physics, some about robots, some are about war and power, some are about the human condition and our search for meaning, and some are just what the comedian Tim Dillon calls fun. And now, a quick few seconds summary of the sponsors. Check them out in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. First is Roka, my favorite sunglasses and prescription glasses. Second is Fight Camp, a punching bag I use at home for a boxing workout. Third is Onnit, a nutrition supplement and fitness company. Fourth is Indeed, a hiring website. And fifth is Fundrise, a platform for investing in private real estate. So the choice is sunglasses, boxing, nutrition, hiring, or wealth. Choose wisely, my friends. And now, on to the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I do try to make these interesting, but if you skip them, please still check out the sponsors in the description. I enjoy their stuff. Maybe you will too. This show is brought to you by Roka, the makers of glasses and sunglasses that I love wearing for their design, feel, and innovation on material, optics, and grip. Roka was started by two all-American swimmers from Stanford, and it was born out of an obsession with performance. I say all that because it's always nice to know there's great human beings behind a product. And this is one heck of a well-engineered product. It's designed to be active in, it's extremely lightweight, the grip is comfortable but strong, and the style is classy, minimalist and classy, just how I like it. So it holds up in all conditions when I'm wearing a suit or when I'm wearing running gear, including on long runs in 100 degree Austin weather. Luckily the summer's over, so we're not hitting 100 degrees like we used to. Check out Roka for both prescription glasses and sunglasses at roka.com and enter code LEX to save 20% off your first order. That's roka.com and enter code LEX. This show is also brought to you by a new sponsor called Fight Camp. It's a freestanding punching bag I use and you can use as well at home to get a great boxing workout in. Hitting this bag is one of my favorite high intensity full body workouts. When I first heard about Fight Camp, one of my concerns was if I hit this thing hard and fast and often, is it gonna move a lot? I'm here to report that the thing doesn't move. They have a uh, separate part that goes on the floor. The bag moves when you hit it, so it gives you a great response, but it doesn't sort of uh, hop on the floor as you would expect. So I can hit it as hard as I want. It stays in one place, gives me an amazing workout. I love it. Fight Camp uses new tech that tracks each punch you throw to measure speed, volume, and output, so you can follow your progress Push yourself to compete on the community leaderboard and challenge others, or do you versus you on the new versus mode. You can pay for your fight camp over 24 months for less than the cost of a boxing gym and get it right away. Plus, fight camp offers free shipping with a 30-day money-back guarantee. To get a free shipping on fight camp, go to joinfightcamp.com slash lex. That's joinfightcamp.com slash lex. 
This episode is also brought to you by Onnit, nutrition, supplement, and fitness company. They make Alpha Brain. Maybe you've heard of it. It's a nootropic that helps support memory, mental speed, and focus. I don't take it every day. I take it when I have a particularly difficult deep work session. When I have a session that I know is going to be two, three, four hours, I'm gonna to have to go deep, have to figure out a difficult problem. This serves as a kind of boost, as a catalyst, as a launching pad for the rocket of the mind. I take it when I just need to clear the mind, maintain focus on a difficult problem. And it, and it, uh, it really does help me. Like I said, I don't necessarily want to uh, get psychologically dependent on it, so I don't use it every day, but I use it quite often because uh, I actually have uh, more and more of these deep work sessions that require solving a particularly difficult problem. Anyway, go to lexfriedman.com slash onnit to get up to 10% off Alpha Brain. That's lexfriedman.com slash onnit. This show is also brought to you by Indeed, a hiring website. I've used them as part of many hiring efforts I've done for the teams I've led in the past. They have tools like Indeed Instant Match, giving you quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description immediately. In fact, I've used it a few times already in the past couple of months as I'm hiring a bunch of folks in different disciplines to help me on this sort of side hobby that we're doing with this podcast. So I'm uh, looking for video editors. I've talked to a bunch of incredible creative people on that front. I'm also looking for a virtual assistant, uh, a uh, robotics engineer to help me with some of the robotics projects. Hiring a bunch of uh, skilled, passionate, creative minds is, uh, is really difficult. And so getting the right set of candidates is the first step and arguably the hardest step and indeed is a good tool that can help you with that task. Anyway, right now you get a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post and indeed.com slash Lex. Get it at indeed.com slash Lex. Offers valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Go to indeed.com slash Lex. Finally, this episode is also brought to you by Fundrise, spelled F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E. It's a platform that allows you to invest in private real estate. If you're looking to diversify your investment portfolio, this is a good choice. I know it might sound like old school advice, but I think with investment, diversification is still super, super powerful. In this age of cryptocurrency and all kinds of investment tools, it might be tempting to invest everything into one place. I still believe in diversification, not just within a particular set of investment tools, but uh, across. And I think private real estate is a super interesting place to diversify into. And of course, it's nice to have a service like Fundrise that makes that super easy, reliable, easy to monitor things, easy to uh, learn more about it. Like I said, you have to use the best tool for the job. So check out Fundrise at fundrise.com slash lex. 150,000 investors use it. It takes just a few minutes to get started. So go to fundrise.com slash lex. That's fundrise.com slash lex. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast, and here is my conversation with Stephen Wolfram. Almost 20 years ago, you published A New Kind of Science, where you presented a study of complexity. 
and an approach for modeling of complex systems. So let us return again to the core idea of complexity. What is complexity? I don't know. I think that's not the most interesting question. It's like, <laughs> you know, if you ask a biologist, what is life? Yeah. That's not the question they care the most about. What I was interested in is how does something that we would usually identify as complexity arise in nature? And I got interested in that question like 50 years ago, which is really embarrassingly long time ago. And, you know, I, I was... Uh, you know, how does snowflakes get to have complicated forms? How do galaxies get to have complicated shapes? How does, you know, how do living systems get produced? Things like that. And the question is, what's the sort of underlying scientific basis for those kinds of things? And the thing that I was at first very surprised by, because I've been doing physics and particle physics and fancy mathematical physics and so on. And it's like, I know all this fancy stuff. I should be able to solve this sort of basic science question. And I couldn't. This was like, early, maybe 1980-ish time frame, And it's like, okay, what can one do to understand the sort of basic secret that nature seems to have? Because it seems like nature, you, know, you look around in the natural world, it's full of incredibly complicated forms. You look at sort of most engineered kinds of things, for instance, they tend to be, you know, we've got sort of circles and, and lines and things like this. And the question is, what secret does nature have that lets it make all this complexity that we in doing engineering, for example, don't naturally seem to have? And so that was the kind of the thing that I got interested in. And then the question was, you know, could I understand that with things like mathematical physics? Well, it didn't work very well. So then I got to thinking about, okay, is there some other way to try to understand this? And then the question was, if you're going to look at some system in nature, how do you make a model for that system, for what that system does? So, you know, a model is some abstract representation of the system, some formal representation of the system. What, are, what is the raw material that you can make that model out of? And so what I realized was, well, actually, programs are a really good source of raw material for making models of things. And, you know, in terms of my personal history, the, to me, that seemed really obvious. And the reason it seemed really obvious is because I just spent several years building this big piece of software that was sort of a predecessor to Mathematica and Wolfram Language, thing called SMP, Symbolic Manipulation Program, which was something that had this idea of starting from just these computational primitives and building up everything one had to build up. And so kind of the notion of, well, let's just try and make models by starting from computational primitives and seeing what we can build up, that seemed like a totally obvious thing to do. In, uh, in retrospect, it might not have been externally quite so obvious, but it was obvious to me at the time, given the path that I happened to have been on. So, you know, so that got me into this question of, let's use programs to model what happens in nature. And the question then is, well, what kind of programs? And, you know, we're used to programs that you write for some particular purpose, and it's a big, long piece of code, and it does some specific thing. But what I got interested in was, okay, if you just go out into the sort of computational universe of possible programs, you say, take the simplest program you can imagine, what does it do? And so I started studying these things called cellular automata. Um, actually, I didn't know at first they were called cellular automata, but I found that out um, subsequently. But it's just a, a line of cells, you know, each one is black or white. And it's just some rule that says the color of the cell is determined by the color that it had on the previous step and its two neighbors on the previous step. And I had initially thought that's, you know, sufficiently simple setup it's not going to do anything interesting. It's always going to be simple, no complexity, simple rules, simple behavior. Okay, but then I actually ran the computer experiment, mm -hmm. which is pretty easy to do. 
Um, I mean, it probably took a few hours um, originally, and um, the uh, and the results were not what I'd expected at all. Now, needless to say, in the way that science actually works, the results that I got had a lot of unexpected things, which I thought were really interesting. But the really strongest result, which was already right there in the printouts I made, I didn't really understand for a couple more years. So it was it was not you know the compressed version of the story is you run the experiment and you immediately see what's going on, but I wasn't smart enough to to do that, so to speak. But the big the big thing is, even with very simple rules of that type, sort of the minimal, tiniest program, sort of the 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 one line program or something, it's possible to get very complicated behavior. My my favorite example is this thing called Rule Thirty, which is a particular cellular automaton rule. You just start it off from one black cell, and it makes this really complicated pattern. And so that for me was sort of a a critical discovery that then kind of said, playing back onto, you know, how does nature make complexity? I sort of realized that might be how it does it. That might be kind of the secret that it's using is that in this kind of computational universe of possible programs, it's actually pretty easy to get programs where even though the program is simple, the behavior when you run the program is not simple at all. Mm -hmm. And that was, so for me, that was the the kind of the, the story of kind of how that that was sort of the the indication that one had got an idea of what the sort of secret that nature uses to make complexity and that complexity how complexity can be made in other places now if you say what is complexity you know it's it's complexity is it's not easy to tell what's going on that's the informal version of what is complexity but there is something going on but, but there's a rule to know what right well no the ru rules can generate just randomness Right. Well, I mean, that that's not obvious. In other words, that's not obvious. That, that's it's right. not obvious at all. Right. And it wasn't what I expected. It's not what people's intuition had been and and has been uh, for you know for a long time. That is, one might think you have a rule, you can tell there's a rule behind it. I mean, it's just like you know the early you know robots in science fiction movies, right? You can tell it's a robot because it does simple things, right? right? Turns out that isn't actually the right story. But it's not obvious that isn't the right story because people assume simple rules, simple behavior, and that the the sort of the key discovery about the computational universe is that isn't true, mm -hmm. and that discovery goes very deep and relates to all kinds of things that I've spent years and years studying. But um, you know that that in the end, the sort of the the what is complexity is well, you can't easily tell what it's going to do. You could just run the rule and see what happens, but you can't just say oh. You know, show me the rule. Great, I now I know what's going to happen. And you know, the the key phenomenon around that is this thing I call computational irreducibility. This fact that in a, something like Rule Thirty, you might say, well, what's it going to do after a million steps? Well, you can run it for a million steps and just do what it does to find out. But you can't compress that. You can't reduce that and say, I'm going to be able to jump ahead and say. This is what it's going to do after a million steps, but I don't have to go through anything like that computational effort. By the way, has anybody succeeded at that? You had a challenge, a competition, right, uh, for right. predicting the middle column of Rule Thirty. Anybody, Indeed, anybody. Oh, a, a number of people have sent things in, and and sort of people are picking away at it, but it's hard. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I've been I've been actually uh, even proving that the center column of Rule Thirty doesn't repeat. Mm -hmm. That's something I think might be doable. Okay, mathematically think, proving. Yes, and so that's analogous to a, a similar kind of thing. Is like the digits of pi, 
which are also generated in this very deterministic way. Mm -hmm. And so a question is, how random are the digits of pi? For example, does every, first of all, do the digits of pi ever repeat? Well, we know they don't, mm -hmm. because it was proved in the 1800s that pi is not a rational number. So that means only rational numbers have digit sequences that repeat. So we know the digits of pi don't repeat. So now the question is, does you know, 0, 1, 2, 3, or whatever, do all the digits base 10 or base 2 or however you work it out, do they all occur with equal frequency? Mm -hmm. Nobody knows. That's far away from what can be understood mathematically at this point. And um, that's, that's kind of, uh, but I'm, I'm even looking for step one, which is prove that the, 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 the center column doesn't repeat and then prove other things about it, like equidistribution of, of uh, equal numbers of zeros and ones. And those are things which I, you know, I kind of set up this little, little prize thing because I thought those were not, you know, not, not too out of range. Those are things which are within you know, a modest amount of time, it's conceivable that those could be done. They're not, they're not far away from what current mathematics might allow. They'll require a bunch of cleverness and hopefully some interesting new ideas that you know, will be useful other places. But you started in 1980 with this idea before I think you realized, of, you know, this idea of programs. You thought that there might be some kind of uh, thermodynamic-like randomness, and then complexity comes from a clever filter that uh, you kind of, like, I don't know, spaghetti or something. You, you, you filter the randomness and out comes complexity, which is an interesting intuition. I mean, how do we know that's not actually what's happening? So just because you right. were then able to develop, look, you don't need this like incredible randomness. You can just have very simple, predictable initial conditions and predictable rules. And then from that emerge complexity. Still, there might be some systems where it's uh, filtering randomness yes. on the inputs. Well, the point is when you have quotes randomness in the input, that means there's all kinds of information in the input. Yeah. And in a sense, what you get out will be maybe just something close to what you put in. Mm -hmm. Like people are very in dynamical systems theory, sort of big area of mathematics that developed uh, from the early 1900s and, and really got big in the 1980s. You know, an example of what people study there a lot, and it, it, its popular version is chaos theory. Um, and an example of what people study a lot is the shift map, which is basically taking 2x mod one to the fractional part of two X, which is basically just taking digits in binary and shifting them to the left. Mm -hmm. So at every step you get to see, if you say, how big is this number that I got out? Mm -hmm. Well, the most important digit in that number is whatever ended up at the, at the left-hand end. But now if you start off from an arbitrary random number, which is quotes randomly chosen, so all its digits are random, then when you run that sort of chaos theory shift map, all that you get out is just whatever you put in. You just get to see what you, what uh, it's not obvious that you would excavate all of those digits. And if you're, for example, making a theory, I don't know, fluid mechanics, for example, if there was that phenomenon in fluid mechanics, then the equations of fluid mechanics can't be right. Because what that would be saying is the equations of that, that it matters to the fluid, what happens in the fluid at the level of the, you know, millionth digit of the initial conditions which is far below the point at which you're hitting kind of sizes of molecules and things like that. So it's kind of almost explaining if that phenomenon is an important thing, it's kind of telling you that the you know, fluid dynamics, which describes fluids as continuous media and so on, isn't, isn't really right. But so, you know, so this idea that 
you know, there's a there's it's a, it's a tricky thing because as soon as you put randomness in, you have to know, you know, what how much of what's coming out is what you put in versus how much is actually something that's being generated. And what's really nice about these systems where you just have very simple initial conditions and where you get random stuff out or seemingly random stuff out is you don't have that issue. You don't have to argue about was there something complicated put in because it's plainly obvious there wasn't. Now, as a practical matter in doing experiments, the big thing is if the thing you see is complex and reproducible, then it didn't come from just filtering some, quotes, randomness from the outside world. It has to be something that is intrinsically made because it wouldn't otherwise be, I mean, you know, the, 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 it could be the case that you set things up and it's always the same each time and you say, well, it's kind of the same, but it's not, then, it's not random each time because it's kind of the definition of it being random is it was kind of picked, picked at random each time, so to speak. So is it possible to for sure know that our universe does not at the fundamental level have randomness? Is it possible to conclusively say there's no randomness at the bottom? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, science, natural science is an inductive business, right? You observe a bunch of things and you say, can we fit these together? What is our hypothesis for what's going on? The thing that I think I can say fairly definitively is at this point we understand enough about fundamental physics that there is, if there was sort of an extra dice being thrown, it's something that doesn't need to be there. We can get what we see without that. Now, it, you know, could you add that in as an extra little featureoid, um, you know, without breaking the universe? Uh, probably, but in fact, almost certainly yes. But is it necessary for understanding the universe? No. And I think actually from a, a more fundamental point of view, it's, it's uh, I think I might be able to argue. So, so one of the things that I've been interested in and been pretty surprised that I've had anything sentient to say about is the question of why does the universe exist? Mm -hmm. I didn't think that was a question that I would, you know, I thought that was a far out there metaphysical kind of um, thing. Uh, even the philosophers have stayed away from that question for the mm -hmm. most part. It's so such a kind of uh, you know difficult to address question. But I actually think, to my great surprise, that from our physics project and so on, that it is possible to actually uh, address that question and explain why the universe exists. And I kind of have a suspicion. I've not thought it through. I kind of have a suspicion that that explanation will eventually show you that, in no meaningful sense, can there be randomness underneath the universe. That is that if there is, it's something that is necessarily irrelevant to our perception of the universe. That is that it could be there, but it doesn't matter because in a sense, we've already, you know, whatever it would do, whatever extra thing it would add is not relevant to our perception of what's going on. So why does the universe exist? How does uh, the irrelevance of randomness connect to uh, the oh, big boy. why question? So, universe. so okay. So, I mean, why does the universe exist? Well, let's see. And I mean, uh, is this the only universe we got? It's the only one. That about that, I'm pretty sure. So now, maybe which one, which which of these topics is better to enter first? Why does the universe exist, and uh, why you think it's the only one that exists? Well, I think they're very closely related. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, the first thing. Let's see. I mean, this why does the universe exist question is built on top of all these things that we've been figuring out about fundamental physics. 
because if you want to know why the universe exists, you kind of have to know what the universe is made of. And uh, I think the um, well, let, let me let me uh, describe a little bit about the why does the universe exist question. So the main issue is let's say you have a model for the universe, and you say I've got this this program or something, and you run it and you make the universe. Now you say, well, how do you actually? Why is that program actually running? And people say, you've got this program that makes the universe. What computer is it running on, mm-hmm. right? What, what does it mean? What, what actualizes something? You know, two plus two equals four, but that's different from saying there's two, a pile of two rocks, another pile of two rocks, and somebody mm-hmm. moves them together and, and makes four, so to speak. And so what is it that kind of turns it from being just this formal thing to being something that is actualized? Mm-hmm. Okay, so there we have to start thinking about, well, well, what do we actually know about what's going on in the universe? Well, we are observers of this universe, but confusingly enough, we're part of this universe. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, we what 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 if if we say what do we what do we know about what's going on in the universe? Well, what we know is what sort of our consciousness records about what's going on in the universe. Mm-hmm. And, and so consciousness is part of the fabric of the universe. So we're in it. Yes, we're in it. And 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 maybe I should maybe I should start off by saying something about the consciousness story because that that's some um, yes. Uh, maybe, maybe we should begin even before that at the very base layer of the Wolfram Physics project. Maybe you can give a broad overview once again really quick about this hypograph model. Yes. And also what is it? A year and a half ago since you've brought this project to the world? What is the status update? Where, what are all the beautiful ideas you have come across? Uh, what are the interesting things you can oh, sort of it's, mention? It's, I mean, it's a, it's a frigging Cambrian explosion. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. I mean, there are all these things which I've kind of wondered about for years, and suddenly there's actually a way to think about them. Mm-hmm. And I really did not see I mean, the real strength of what's happened, I absolutely did not see coming. And the real strength of it is we've got this model for physics, but it turns out it's a foundational kind of model that's a different kind of computation-like model that I'm kind of calling the sort of multi-computational model. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that kind of model is applicable not only to physics, but also to lots of other kinds of things. And one reason that's extremely powerful is because physics has been very successful. So we know a lot based on what we figured out in physics. And if we know that the same model governs physics and governs, I don't know, economics, linguistics, immunology, whatever, we know that the same kind of model governs those things. We can start using things that we've successfully discovered in physics and applying those intuitions in all these other areas. And that's that's pretty exciting and, and, and very surprising to me. Um, and in fact, it's kind of like in the original story of sort of you go and you explain why is there complexity in the natural world, then you realize, well, there's all this complexity, there's all this computational irreducibility, you know, there's a lot we can't know about what's going to happen. It's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of a very confusing thing for people who say, you know, science has nailed everything down. We're going to, you know, based on science, we can know everything. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, there's this computational irreducibility thing right in the middle of that, thrown up by science, so to speak. And then the question is, well, given computational irreducibility, how can we actually figure out anything about what happens in the world? Why aren't we, why are we able to predict anything? Why are we able to sort of operate in the world? And the answer is that we sort of live in these slices of computational reusability that exist in this kind of ocean of computational irreducibility. And it turns out that it seems that it's a very fundamental feature of the kind of model that seems to operate in physics 
and perhaps in a lot of these other areas, that there are these particular slices of computational reducibility that are relevant to us. And those are the things that both allow us to operate in the world mm -hmm. and not just have everything be completely unpredictable, but they're also things that potentially give us what amount to sort of physics-like laws mm -hmm. in all these other areas. So that's that's been sort of an exciting thing. But but I would say that in general for our project, it's been going spectacularly well. I mean, I you know, I it's very honestly, it wasn't something I expected to happen in my lifetime. I mean, it's you know, it's something where where it's it's and in fact, one of the things about it, some of the things that we've discovered are things where I was pretty sure that wasn't how things worked. Mm -hmm. And turns out I'm wrong. And you know, I, I, in a major area in metamathematics, I, I'd be realizing that I something I've long believed. We can talk about it uh, mm -hmm. later. That 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 uh, just just really isn't right. But mm -hmm. but I think that um, the um, the thing that uh, so so what's happened with the physics project? I mean, you know, it's a it can explain a little bit about how the how the model works. But basically, we can maybe ask you uh, the following question. So. It's easy through words to describe how cellular automata works. You've you've explained this, and uh, it's the fundamental mechanism by which you, in your book and you kind of science, explored the idea of complexity and how to mm -hmm. do science in this world of island, reducible islands and irreducible, general irreducibility. Okay, so how does the model of hypergraphs differ from cellular automata, and how does the idea of multi-computation differ like maybe okay. that's a way to describe it all right we're, we're yeah right this is a you know my life is like all of our lives something of a story of computational irreducibility yes and you know it's been going for a few years now so it's always a challenge to kind of find these appropriate pockets of reducibility but mm -hmm. let me see what i can do great so so i mean first of all let's let's talk about physics first of all mm -hmm. and you know a key observation the one of the starting point of our physics project is things about what is space, what is the universe made of, and you know ever since Euclid, people just sort of say space is just this thing where you can put things at any position you want, and they're just points and they're just geometrical things that you can just arbitrarily put at different different coordinate positions. Sort of the first thing in our physics project is the idea that space is made of something. Just like water is made of molecules, space is made of kind of atoms of space. And the only thing we can say about these atoms of space is they have some identity. There's a, there's a, there is, it's this atom as opposed to this atom. And, you know, you could give them, if you were a computer person, you give them UUIDs or something. But, um, uh, <laughs> yes. And, and, um, but th that's all there is to say about them, so yes. to speak. Um, and then all we know about these atoms of space is how they relate to each other. So we say these three atoms of space are associated with each other in some relation. So you can think about that as, you know, what atom of space is friends with what other atom of space? Mm -hmm. You can build this essentially friend network of the atoms of space. And the sort of starting point of our physics project is that's what our universe is. It's a giant friend network of the atoms of space. And so how can that possibly represent our universe? Well, it's like in uh, something like water, you know, there are molecules bouncing around, but on a large scale that, uh, you know, that produces fluid flow and we have fluid vortices and we have all of these phenomena that are sort of the emergent phenomena from that underlying 
uh, kind of collection of molecules bouncing around. Mm -hmm. And by the way, it's important that that collection of molecules bouncing around have this phenomenon of computational irreducibility. That's actually what leads to the second law of thermodynamics, among other things. And that leads to the sort of randomness of the underlying behavior, which is what gives you something which on a large scale seems like it's a smooth, continuous uh, type of thing. And so, so, okay, so first thing is space is made of something. It's made of all these atoms of space connected together in this network. And then everything that we experience is sort of features of, the, of that structure of space. So, you know, when we have an electron or something or a photon, it's some kind of tangle in the structure of space, much like kind of a vortex in a fluid would be just this thing that is, you know, it, it, it can actually, the vortex can move around. It can involve different molecules in the fluid, but the vortex still stays there. And, and if you zoom out enough, the vortex looks like an atom itself, like a basic element. Yes. So yes. there's the levels of abstraction if you squint and kind of uh, blur things out, it looks like at right. every level of abstraction you can define what is a basic individual entity. Yes, but but you know, in in this model, there's a bottom level. Yeah, you know, there's an elementary length. Maybe that it's ten to the minus hundred, ten to the minus hundred meters, let's say, which is really small. You know, a proton is ten to the minus fifteen meters, the smallest we've ever been able to sort of see with a particle accelerator is around ten to the minus twenty one meters. So you know, if we don't know precisely what the correct scale is, but it's perhaps over the order of ten to the minus one hundred meters, so it's pretty small. Um, and but but that's that's the end. That's that's what things are made of. What's your intuition where the ten to the minus one hundred comes from? What's your intuition about this scale? Well, okay, so there's a calculation which I consider to be somewhat rickety. Okay, which has to do with comparing. So, so there are various fundamental constants. There's the speed of light. The speed of light, once you know the elementary time, the speed of light is tells you the conversion from the elementary time to the elementary length. Mm -hmm. Then there's the question of how do you convert to the elementary energy and how do you convert to uh, between other things? And the various constants we know, we know the speed of light, we know the gravitational constant, um, we know Planck's constant in quantum mechanics. Those are the three important ones. And we actually know some other things. We know things like the size of the universe, the Hubble constant, things like that. And essentially, this calculation of the elementary length comes from looking at these sort of combination of those. Okay, so the most obvious thing, people have sort of assumed that quantum gravity happens at this thing, the Planck scale, 10 to the minus 34 meters, which is the sort of the, the combination of, of Planck's constant and the gravitational constant, the speed of light that gives you that kind of length. Mm -hmm. um, turns out in our model, there is an additional parameter which is essentially the number of simultaneous threads of execution of the universe, mm -hmm. which is essentially the number of sort of independent quantum uh, processes that are going on. And that number, let's see if I remember that number, that number is 10 to the 170, I think. And, and, and so it's a big number, but mm -hmm. um, that number then connects, you know, sort of modifies what you might think from all these Planck Mm -hmm. uh, units to give you the things we're giving, and th there's been sort of a mystery actually in the in the as a more technical physics thing that the Planck mass, the Planck energy, um, Planck energy is actually surprisingly big. The Planck length is tiny, ten to the minus thirty four meters. That you know, Planck time, ten to the minus forty three meters. I think seconds. I think, um, but the Planck energy is like uh, is like the the energy of a of a lightning strike. Okay, mm -hmm. which is pretty weird. In our models. 
the actual elementary energy is that divided by the number of sort of simultaneous quantum threads, and it ends up being really small too. And that sort of explains that mystery that's been around for a while about, about how Planck units work. But, but the, you know, whether that precise estimate is right, we don't know yet. I mean, the, that, that's one of the things that's sort of been a, a thing we've been pretty interested in is how do you see through, you know, how, does you, how do you make a gravitational microscope that can kind of see through to the atoms of space. You know, how do you get in, in fluid flow, for example, if you go to hypersonic flow or something, you know, you've got a Mark 20, you know, space plane or something, it really matters that there are individual molecules hitting the space plane, not a continuous fluid. The question is, what is the analogous kind of, um, what is the analog of hypersonic flow for, for our, for things about the structure of space time? And it looks like uh, a, a rapidly rotating black hole right uh, at the sort of critical rotation rate um, is, uh, it's, it looks as if that's a case where essentially the, the structure of space-time is just about to fall apart. And you may be able to kind of see the evidence of sort of discrete uh, elements. You know, you may be able to kind of see there the sort of gravitational microscope of actually seeing these discrete elements of space and there may be some effect in, for example, gravitational waves produced by rapidly rotating black hole that in which one could actually see some phenomenon where one can say, yes, these don't come out the way one would expect based on having a continuous structure of space-time. It, it is something where you can kind of see through to the discrete structure. Um, we don't know that yet. So you, can you maybe elaborate a little bit deeper how a microscope that can see to 10 to the minus... 100, how rotating black holes and uh, presumably the, the the detailed, accurate detection of gravitational waves from such black holes can reveal the discreteness of space. Okay, first thing is, what is a black hole? Uh, actually, we, we need to go a little bit further in the, in the story of what space-time is, because I explained a little bit about what space is, but I didn't talk about what time is. And that's sort of important in, in understanding space-time, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And your sense is both space and time in the story are discrete. Absolutely, absolutely. But it's a complicated story, Yes. and um, needless to say. Well, it's simple we'll be, at the bottom. It's, it's very simple <laughs> at the bottom. It's, uh, it's very, in the end, it's simple but deeply abstract, yeah. and um, and something that is simple in conception, but kind of wrapping one's head around what's going on is pretty hard. Mm -hmm. um, but so so first of all, we have this. So you know, I've described these kind of atoms of space and their connections. You can think about these things as a hypergraph. You know, a graph is just you connect nodes to nodes. But a hypergraph, you can have you know, uh, you can have sort of not just friends individual friends to friends, but you can have these triplets of, of friends or whatever else. It's, it's, um, and so we're just saying, and that, that's just the relations between atoms of space are the hyper edges of the hypergraph. And so we got some big collection of, of these atoms of space, maybe 10 to the 400 or something in our, in our universe. Um, and that's the structure of space. That's an every feature of what we experience in the world is a feature of that that hypergraph, that spatial hypergraph. So then the question is, well, how does what, what does that spatial hypergraph do? Well, the idea is that there are rules that, that update that spatial hypergraph. And you know, in a cellular automaton, you've just got this line of cells, and you just say at every step, at every time step, you've got fixed time steps, fixed array of cells. At every step, uh, every cell gets updated according to a certain rule. 
-hmm. And that's um, that's kind of the uh, that's the way it works. Now in this hypergraph, it's sort of vaguely the same kind of thing. We say every time you see a little piece of hypergraph that looks like this, update it to one that looks like this. Mm -hmm. So it's just keep rewriting this hypergraph. Every time you see something that looks like that anywhere in the universe, it gets rewritten. Now, one thing that's tricky about that, which we'll come to, is this multi-computational idea, which has to do with you're not saying in, in some kind of lockstep way, do this one, then this one, then this one. It's just whenever you see one you can do, you can go ahead and do it. And that leads one not to have a single thread of time in the universe. Because if you knew which one to do, you would just say, okay, we do this one, then we do this one, then we do this one. But if you say, just do whichever one you feel like, you end up with these multiple threads of time, these kind of multiple histories of the universe, depending on which order you happen to do the things you could do in. So it's fundamentally asynchronous and parallel. Yes, yes. Which is very uncomfortable for the human brain that seeks for things to be sequential yes. and synchronous. Right. Well, I think that this is this is part of the story of consciousness, is I think the key aspect of consciousness that is important for sort of parsing the universe is this point that we have a single thread of experience. Right. We have a memory of what happened in the past. We can say something, predict something about the future, but there's a single thread of experience. And you know, it's not obvious it should work that way. I mean, we've got 100 billion neurons in our brains and they're all firing in all kinds of different ways. But yet our experience is that there is the single thread of 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 time that that goes that that goes along. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, one of the things I've kind of realized with a lot more clarity in the last year is the fact that our the fact that we conclude that the universe has the laws it has is a consequence of the fact that we have consciousness the way we have consciousness. And so the fact, so, so I mean, just to go on with kind of the, the basic setup, mm -hmm. it's, uh, so we've got this spatial hypergraph, it's mm -hmm. got all these atoms of space, they're getting, they're getting these little clumps of atoms of space are getting turned into other clumps of atoms of space, and that's happening mm -hmm. everywhere in the universe, all the time. And so one thing that's a little bit weird is there's nothing permanent in the universe. The universe is getting rewritten everywhere all the time. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't getting rewritten, it would, space wouldn't be knitted together. That is, space would just fall apart. There wouldn't be any way in which we could say this part of space is next to this part of space. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I was, uh, people were confused about back in antiquity, you know, the ancient Greek philosophers and so on is how does motion work? You know, how can it be the case that you can take a thing that we can walk around and it's still us when we walked, mm -hmm. you know, a foot forward, so to speak? And in a sense, with our models, that's again a question because it's a different set of atoms of space. When we, yeah. when, you know, when I move my hand, it's, it's moving into a different set of atoms of space. Mm -hmm. It's having to be recreated. It's not, the thing itself is not there. It's, it's being continuously recreated all the time. Mm -hmm. Now it's a little bit like waves in an ocean, you know, vortices in a fluid, which again, the actual molecules that exist in those are not what define the identity of the thing. Mm -hmm. And, but it's a little bit, uh, you know, th this idea that there can be pure motion, that it can, that it is even possible for an object to just move around in the universe and not change, is it's not self-evident that such a thing should be possible, and that is part of our perception of the universe is that we we parse those aspects of the universe where things like pure motion are possible. Now, pure motion, even in general relativity, the theory of gravity, 
Um, it, pure motion is a little bit of a complicated thing. I mean, if you imagine your average, you know, teacup or something approaching a black hole, it is deformed and distorted by the structure of space-time. Mm -hmm. And to say, you know, is it really pure motion? Is it that same teacup that's the same shape? Well, it's a bit of a complicated story. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a more extreme version of that. So, so anyway, the, the, the thing that, that's happening is we've got space, we've got this notion of time. So time is this kind of this rewriting of the hypergraph. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's important about that, time is this sort of computationally irreducible process. There's something, you know, time is not something where, in, in kind of the mathematical view of, of time, tends to be, time is just a coordinate. We can, you know, slide a slider, turn a knob, and we'll change the, the time that we've got in this equation. Mm -hmm. But in this picture of time, that's not how it works at all. Time is this inexorable, irreducible, kind of set of computations that go on, that go from where we are now to the future. But so, so the thing, and one of the things that is, again, something one sort of has to break out of is your average trained physicist like me says, you know, space and time are the same kind of thing. They're related by, you know, the Poincaré group and, and uh, Lorentz transformations and relativity and all these kinds of things. And, you know, space and time, uh, you know, uh, there are all these kind of sort of folk stories you can tell about why space and time are the same kind of thing. In this model, they're fundamentally not the same kind of thing. Space is this kind of sort of connections between these atoms of space. Time is this computational process. So the thing that the first sort of surprising thing is, well, it turns out you get relativity anyway. And the reason that happens, that a few bits and pieces here, which, which one has to understand, but but the, the fundamental point is, if you are an observer embedded in the system that are part of this whole story of things getting updated in this way and that, there are, there's sort of a limit to what you can tell about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And really, in the end, the only thing you can tell is what are the causal relationships between events. So an event in this sort of a, the, an elementary event is a little piece of hypergraph got rewritten. And that means a, a few hyper edges of the hypergraph were consumed by the event and you produce some other hyper edges. And that's an elementary event. Mm -hmm. And so then the question is, uh, what we can tell is kind of what the network of causal relationships between elementary events is. That's the ultimate thing, the causal graph of the universe. And it, it turns out that, well, there's this property of causal invariance that uh, is true of a bunch of these models, and I think is inevitably true for a variety of reasons, um, that makes it be the case that it doesn't matter kind of if, if you are uh, sort of saying, well, I've got this hypergraph and I can rewrite this piece here and this piece here, and I do them all in different orders. When you construct the causal graph for each of those orders that you choose to do things in, you'll end up with the same causal graph. Mm. And so that's essentially why uh, well, that's in the end why relativity works. It's why our perception of space and time is 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 uh, as as having this kind of connection that relativity says they should have, and that's that's kind of that's kind of how that works. I think um, I'm missing a little piece. Uh, if we can go there again, you said uh, the the fact that the observer is embedded in this uh, hypergraph. What's missing? Uh, what is the observer not able to state okay, so, about so, this? universe of so space you, and time. So if you look from the outside, you can say, oh, I see this uh, I see this particular place was updated, and then this one was updated, yeah. and, and I'm seeing which order things were updated in. Mm -hmm. 
But the observer embedded in the universe doesn't know which order things were updated in because until they've been updated, they have no idea what else happened. So the only thing they know is the set of causal relationships. Let me give an extreme example. Mm -hmm. Let's imagine that the universe is a Turing machine. Mm -hmm. Turing machines have just this one update head which does something, mm -hmm. and otherwise the Turing machine just does nothing. Mm -hmm. right? And, and the Turing machine works by having this head move around and do its updating uh, you know, just where the head happens to be. Mm -hmm. The question is, could the universe be a Turing machine? Yes. Could the universe just have a single updating head that's just zipping around all over the place? You say, that's crazy because you know, I'm, I'm talking to you, you seem to be updating, I'm updating, etc. But the thing is, there's no way to know that because if there was just this head moving around, it's like, okay, it updates me, but you're completely frozen at that point. Until the head has come over and updated you, you have no idea what happened to me. And so if you sort of unravel that argument, you realize the only thing we actually can tell is what the network of causal relationships between the things that happened were. We don't get to know from some sort of outside sort of God's eye view of the thing. We don't get to know what sort of from the outside what happened. We only get to know sort of what the set of relationships between the things that happened actually were. Yeah, but if I somehow record like a trace of this, I guess would be called multi-computation, can't I uh, then look back in the Where do you record the trace? Some, you place throughout the universe, like throughout like a log that records in my own pocket of in this hypograph, can't I like, realizing that I'm getting an outdated picture. Can't I record? See, the problem is, and this is where things start getting very entangled in, in terms of what one understands. The problem is that any such recording device is itself part of the universe. Yeah. So you don't get to say, you never get to say, let's go outside the universe and go do this. And, and that's why I mean, lots of the features of this of this model and the way things work end up being a result of that. So, but what, I guess, from on a human level, what is the cost you're paying? What are you missing from not getting an updated picture all the time? Okay, I got, I, I understand what you're just saying. Yeah, yeah, right. But like, what, like, how does consciousness emerge from that? Like, uh, how, <laughs> like, what, what are the limitations of that observer? Okay. I understand you're getting a, a delayed well, picture. Well, there's, there's a, okay, so there's, there's, bunch of limitations of the observer, I think. Yeah. Maybe just explain something about quantum mechanics, because that maybe is, a, is an extreme version of some of these issues, mm -hmm. which helps to kind of motivate why one should sort of think things through a little bit more carefully. So one feature of, the, of this, okay, so in standard physics, like high school physics, you learn, you know, the equations of motion for a ball. And the, the, you know, it says, you throw the ball, this angle, this velocity, things will move in this way. And there's a definite answer, right? The story, the, the key story of quantum mechanics is there aren't definite answers to where does the ball go. There's kind of this whole sort of bundle of possible paths. And all we say we know from quantum mechanics is certain probabilities for where the ball will end up. Okay, so that's kind of the, the core idea of quantum mechanics. So in our models, you, quantum mechanics is not some kind of plug-in add-on type thing. Mm -hmm. You absolutely cannot get away from quantum mechanics because as you think about updating this hypergraph, there isn't just one sequence of things, one definite sequence of things that can happen. There are all these different possible update sequences that can occur. You could do this you know, piece of the hypergraph now and then this one later and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All those different paths of history correspond to these quantum, quantum 
paths in, in quantum mechanics, these different possible quantum histories. And one of the things that's kind of surprising about it is they they branch. You know, there can be a certain state of the universe and it could do this or it could do that, but they can also merge. There can be two states of the universe which their next state, the next state they produce is the same for mm -hmm. both of them. Yeah. And that process of branching and merging is kind of critical. And the idea that they can be merging is critical and somewhat non-trivial for these hypergraphs because there's a whole graph isomorphism story and there's a whole very elaborate Set of that's where the causal invariance comes in. Yes, among, among other things, right? Okay. Yes, that that's. But but so so then what happens is that what what one's seeing. Okay, so we've got this thing. It's branching. It's merging, etc., etc., etc. Okay, so now the question is, how do we perceive that? What do, you know? How do we do we? Why don't we notice that the universe is branching and merging? Mm -hmm. Why you know? Why is it the case that we just think a definite set of things happen? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer is we are embedded in that universe, and our brains are branching and merging too. Mm -hmm. And so, what quantum mechanics becomes a story of is how does a branching brain perceive a branching universe? Mm -hmm. And the key thing is, as soon as you say, "I think definite things happen in the universe," that means you are essentially conflating lots of different parts of history. You're saying. Actually, as far as I'm concerned, because I'm convinced that definite things happen in the universe, all these parts of history must be equivalent. Now, it's not obvious that that would be a consistent thing to do. It might be you say all these parts of history are equivalent, but by golly, moments later, that would be a completely inconsistent point of view. Everything would have you know, gone to hell in different ways. The fact that that doesn't happen is, well, that's a consequence of this causal invariance thing, but that's, and the fact that that does happen a little bit is what causes little quantum effects. Mm -hmm. And that um, if that didn't happen at all, there wouldn't be anything that sort of is like quantum mechanics. It would be, uh, quantum mechanics is kind of like in this, uh, in, in this kind of this bundle of paths. It's a little bit like what happens in statistical mechanics and fluid mechanics, whatever, that most of the time you just see this continuous fluid. You just see the world just progressing in this kind of way that's like this continuous fluid. But every so often, if you look at the exact right experiment, you can start seeing, well, actually, it's made of these molecules where they might go that way or they might go this way, and that's kind of quantum effects. Mm -hmm. And and so that's so the the this kind of idea of where we're sort of embedded in the universe, this branching brain is perceiving this branching universe, and that ends up being sort of a story of quantum mechanics. That's that's part of the the whole picture of what's going on. But I think, I mean, to come back to sort of where does consciousness, what is what is the story of consciousness? So in the universe, we've got, you know, whatever it is, 10 to the 400 atoms of space, they're all doing these complicated things. It's all a big, complicated, irreducible computation. The question is, what do we perceive from all of that? Mm -hmm. And the answer is that we are, we are parsing the universe in a particular way. Let me again go back to the, the gas molecules analogy. You know, in the gas in this room, there are molecules bouncing around in all kinds of complicated patterns, mm -hmm. but we don't care. All we notice is there's, you know, the gas laws are satisfied. Maybe there's some fluid dynamics. These are kind of features of that assembly of molecules that we notice, and then lots of details we don't notice. When you say we, do you mean the tools of physics, or do you mean literally the human brain and its perception system? Well, okay, so the human brain is where it starts, but we built a bunch of instruments to do a bit better than the human brain, but they still have many of the same kinds of ideas, you know, their cameras and their pressure sensors and their, these kinds of things. They're not, uh, you know, at this point, we don't know 
how to make fundamentally qualitatively different sensory devices. Right. And, so and, it's always just an extension of the conscious ex experience. Even or our sensory experience. Um, sensory experience, but sensory experience is somehow intricately tied to consciousness. Right, well, so so one question is, when we are looking at all these molecules of the, in the gas, and there might be 10 to the 20th molecules in some little, little box or something, it's like, what, what do we notice about those molecules? So one thing that we can say is, we don't notice that much. We are, you know, we are computationally bounded observers. We can't go in and say, okay, I'm the 10 to the 20th molecules, and I know that I can sort of decrypt their motions, and I can figure out this and that. It's like, I'm just going to say, what's the average density of molecules? And so one key feature of us is that we are computationally bounded. And that when you are looking at a universe which is full of computation and doing huge amounts of computation, but we are computationally bounded, there's only certain things about that universe that we're going to be sensitive to. We're not going to be you know, figuring out what all the atoms of space are doing because we're just computationally bounded observers and we are only sampling these, these small set of features. So I, I think the two defining features of consciousness that, and I, uh, you know, I would say that the, the sort of the, the preamble to this is for years, you know, as I've talked about sort of computation and fundamental features of physics and science, people ask me, so what about consciousness? Mm -hmm. And I, for years, I've said, I have nothing to say about consciousness. And, you know, I've, I've kind of told this story, you know, you talk about intelligence, you talk about life. Uh, these are both features where you say, what's the abstract definition of life? We don't really know the abstract definition. We know the one for life on earth. It's got RNA, it's got cell membranes, it's got all this kind of stuff. Similarly for intelligence, we know the human definition of intelligence, but what is intelligence abstractly? We don't really know. And so what I've long believed is that sort of the abstract definition of intelligence is just computational sophistication. That is, that as soon as you can be computationally sophisticated, that's kind of the abstract version, the generalized version of intelligence. Mm -hmm. So then the question is, what about consciousness? And what I sort of realized is that consciousness is actually a step down from intelligence. That is, that you might think, oh, you know, consciousness is the is the is the top of the pile. Mm -hmm. But actually, I don't think it is. I think that there's this notion of kind of computational sophistication, which is the generalized intelligence. Mm -hmm. But consciousness has two limitations, I think. One of them is computational boundedness. That is that we're only perceiving a sort of computationally bounded view of the universe. And the other is this idea of a single thread of time. Mm -hmm. That is that we and in fact, we know neurophysiologically our brains go to some trouble to give us this one thread of attention, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And it isn't the case that, you know, in all the neurons in our brains, that, that uh, in, at least in our conscious, note the, the, you know, the correspondence of language, in our conscious experience, we just have this single thread of attention, single thread of, of perception. Um, and, you know, maybe there's something unconscious that's bubbling around that's the kind of almost the quantum version of what's happening in our brain, so to speak. We've got the, the classical flow of what we are mostly thinking about, so to speak. But there's this kind of bubbling around of other paths that is all those other neurons that didn't make it to be part of our sort of conscious stream of experience. So in that sense, intelligence as computational sophistication is much broader than, uh, yes. than the, the, the computational constraints which Consciousness operates under, and also the sequential, like the sequential thing. Yes, like right. the, the notion of time. 
that's that's kind of interesting but then the the, the follow-up question is like okay starting to get a sense of what is intelligence and how does that connect to a human brain because you're saying um intelligence is almost like a fabric like what we like plug into it or something like yeah i think uh, you know people, our consciousness people, plugs into it yeah i mean the intelligence i think the core i mean you know, intelligence at some level is just a word, but we are asking, you know, what is the the notion of intelligence as we generalize it beyond the bounds of humans, beyond the bounds of even the AIs that we humans have built and so on? You know, what what is intelligence? You know, is the weather, you know, people say the weather has a mind of its own. What does that mean? You know, can the weather be intelligent? Yeah. You know, what does agency have to do with intelligence here? So is intelligence just like your conception of computation, just intelligence? Is a is the capacity to perform computation in a sea of yeah I think so I mean I think that's right and I, I think that you know this question of of is it for a purpose okay mm -hmm. that quickly degenerates into yeah. a horrible philosophical mess because you know whenever you say did the weather do that for a purpose yeah right well yes it did it was trying to move a bunch of hot air from the equator to the poles or something that's its purpose but w why. Because I, I seem to be equally as dumb today as I was yesterday. So there's some persistence, uh, like a consistency over time that the intelligence I plugged into. So like what's, it seems like there's a hard constraint well, between the amount of computation I can perform in my consciousness. Like they seem to be really closely connected somehow. Well, I think the point is that the thing that gives you kind of the ability to have kind of conscious Intel intelligence, you you can have kind of this. Okay, so so one thing is we don't know intelligences other than the ones that are very much like us. Yes, right. And the ones that are very much like us, I think, have this feature of single thread of time, bounded. You know, computationally bounded. Now that, but you also need computational sophistication. Having a single thread of time and being computationally bounded, you could just be a clock going tick tock. You know, that would satisfy those conditions. But the fact that we have this uh, sort of uh, irreducible, uh, you know, computational ability, that's that's an important feature. That's that's the sort of the, the, the bedrock on which we can construct the things we construct. Now, the fact that we have this experience of the world that has a single thread of time and computational boundedness, the thing that I sort of realized is it's that that causes us to deduce from this irreducible mess of what's going on in the physical world, the laws of physics that we think exist. So in other words, if we say, why do we believe that there is you know, a continuous space, let's say? Why do we believe that gravity works the way it does? Mm -hmm. Well, in principle, we could be kind of parsing details of the universe that were, uh, you know, that involved, okay, the analogy is, uh, again, with uh, the you know statistical mechanics and molecules in a box, we could be sensitive to every little detail of the swirling around of right. those molecules, and we could say what really matters is the you know the wiggle effect yes. that is um, you know that is something that we humans just never notice because it's yeah. some weird thing that happens when there are fifteen collisions of air molecules and this happens and that happens. We just see the pure motion of a ball yeah. moving about, right? And Why do we see that? Right. And and the point is that that what seems to be the case is that 
the things that, if, if we say, given this sort of hypergraph that's updating and all the details about all the sort of, uh, sort of atoms of space and what they do, and we say, how do we slice that to what we can be sensitive to? What seems to be the case is that it, as soon as we assume you know, computational boundedness, single thread of time, that leads us to general relativity. In other words, we can't avoid that. That that's the way that we we will parse the universe. Given those constraints, we parse the universe according to those particular uh, in, in such a way that we say the aggregate reducible sort of pocket of computational reducibility that we slice out of this kind of whole computationally irreducible ocean of behavior is just this one that corresponds to general relativity. Yeah, but we don't perceive general relativity. Well, we do if we do fancy experiments. So you're we, saying so perceive really does mean the full. We drop something. That's a, that's a great example of general relativity in action. That gravity. No, but works. like, what's the difference in that and Newtonian mechanics? I mean, what, oh, it doesn't. I, th this is I, when I say general relativity. That's you just mean gravity. The Uber, the Uber theory, so to speak. Okay. Uh, I mean, Newtonian gravity is just the approximation that we can make, you know, on the Earth and things like that. Okay. So, so this is you know the phenomenon of gravity is one that is a consequence of, you know, we would perceive something very different from gravity. So, so the way to understand that is when we think about, okay, so we make up reference frames with which we parse what's happening in space and time. Mm -hmm. So in other words, one of, the, one of the things that we do is we say, as time progresses, uh, everywhere in space, is ha something happens at a particular time, and then we go to the next time, and we say, this is what space is like at the next time, this is what space is like at the next time. That's, it's the reason we are used to doing that is because, you know, when we look around, we might see, you know, 10, 100 meters away. Um, the time it takes light to travel that distance is really short compared to the time it takes our brains to know what happened. Mm -hmm. So as far as our brains are concerned, we are parsing the universe in this, there is a moment in time, it's all of space. There's a moment in time, it's all of space. Mm -hmm. You know, If we were the size of planets or something, we would have a different perception because the speed of light would be much more important to us. We wouldn't have this perception that uh, things happen progressively in time everywhere in space. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's an important kind of constraint. And the reason that we kind of parse the universe in the way that causes us to say gravity works the way it does is because we're doing things like deciding that we can say the universe exists, space has a definite structure. Uh, there is a moment in time, space has this definite structure. We move to the next moment in time, space has another structure. Mm -hmm. That kind of setup is what lets us kind of deduce, kind of what to, to parse the universe in such a way that we say gravity works the way it does. So uh, that kind of reference frame is that the illusion of that is that you're saying that's somehow useful for consciousness. Like that's what consciousness does. Because in a sense, what consciousness is doing is there are uh, it's it's insisting that the universe is kind of sequentialized. Right. That is, um, and it it is not allowing the possibility that oh, there are these multiple threads of time and they're all flowing differently. It's like saying no, you know, everything is happening in this one thread of experience that we have. And that illusion of that one thread of experience cannot happen at the planetary scale. So you're, are you saying typical human, are you saying we are at a human level is special? 
here for consciousness? Like, well, for our kind of consciousness, it's it's uh, you know, if we existed at a scale close to the elementary length, for example, then our perception of the universe will be absurdly different. Okay, so but this makes consciousness seem like a weird side effect of this particular scale, and so who cares? I mean, well, so consciousness yes. is not that special. I, I think, uh, look, I think that a very interesting question is, which I've certainly thought a little bit about, is what can you imagine? What is a sort of factoring of something, you know, what are some other possible ways you could exist, so to speak? Right. And, you know, if you were a photon, if you were sort of, uh, you know, some kind of thing that was some uh, kind of, you know, intelligence represented in terms of photons. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, the photons we receive in the cosmic microwave background, mm -hmm. those photons, as far as they're concerned, the universe just started. Mm -hmm. they, they, they were emitted, you know, 100,000 years after the beginning of the universe. They've been traveling at the speed of light. Time stayed still for them, and then they just arrived and we just detected them. Mm -hmm. So for them, the universe just started. And that's a different perception of, you know, that has implications for a very different perception of time. They don't have that single thread that seems to be really important for being able to tell a heck of a good story. So we yes. humans yeah, tell We can tell a story. We can <laughs> right, we can so, tell a story. And we, what other uh, kind of stories can you tell? So photon is a really boring story. Or, yeah, I mean, so, no. so that's a, I don't know if they're a boring story, but I, I think it's, you know, I've been wondering about this and I've been asking, you know, friends of mine who are science fiction writers and things, have you written stuff about this? And I've got one example, mm -hmm. great, great uh, collection of books from my friend Rudy Rooker, which were, um, uh, which I have to say, the, um, the books about uh, that are very informed by a bunch of science that I've done. And the thing that I really loved about them is, you know, you know, in the, in the first chapter of the, of the book, the, the earth is consumed by these things he called nants, which are nano, nanobot type things. And nice. it, 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 um, but it, so, you know, so the earth is gone in the first, but then it comes back. But, but, um, but then- Spoiler alert. Yeah, right. That was, a, that was only a micro spoiler. It's only chapter one. Okay, good. It's, it's, um, the, but but uh, the thing that um, is, is not a real spoiler alert because it's such a complicated concept, but, but in the end, in the end, the, the Earth is saved by this thing called the principle of computational equivalence, which is a kind of a, a core scientific idea of mine. And I was just like like thrilled. I, I don't read fiction books very often. Um, and I was just thrilled I get to the end of this and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, everything is saved by this sort of deep scientific principle. Can you, so, can you maybe elaborate how the principle of computational equivalence can save a planet? That would that would be a, I have a, a terrible spoiler for hey, that would be a spoiler okay yeah yeah but but no but I, I, let me say what the principle of computational equivalence is mm -hmm. um, so the question is you are you have a system you have some rule you can think of its behavior as corresponding to a computation the question is how sophisticated is that computation mm -hmm. the statement of the principle of computational equivalence is as soon as it's it's not obviously simple it will be as sophisticated as anything. Mm -hmm. And so that has the implication that, you know, rule 30, uh, you know, our brains, other things in physics, they're all ultimately equivalent in the computations they can do. And that's what leads to this computational irreducibility idea because the reason we don't get to jump ahead, you know, and, and outthink rule 30 mm -hmm. is because we're just computationally equivalent to rule 30. So we're kind of just both just running computations that are the same sort of raw, the same level of computation, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the the idea there. And the question, I mean, it's it's like uh, the, you know, 
in in the the science fiction version would be okay somebody says we just need more servers get us more servers the way to get even more servers is turn the whole planet into a bunch of micro servers mm-hmm. and that that's uh, that's where it starts and so the question of you know computational equivalence principle of computational equivalence is well actually you don't need to build those custom servers actually you can uh you can just um use natural computation to compute things, so to speak. You can use nature to compute. You don't need to have done all that engineering. I mean, it's kind of the, it's it's kind of feels a little disappointing that you say, we're going to build all these servers. We're going to do all these things. We're going to make, you know, maybe we're going to have human consciousness uploaded into, you know, some elaborate digital environment. And then you look at that thing and you say, it's got electrons moving around just like in a rock. Mm-hmm. And then you say, well, what's the difference? And the principle of computational equivalence says there isn't at some level, a fundamental, you know, you can't say mathematically there's a fundamental difference between the rock that is the future of human consciousness and the rock that's just a rock. Mm-hmm. Now, what I've sort of realized with this kind of consciousness thing is there is a uh, there is an aspect of this that seems to be more special mm-hmm. that isn't, and, and for example, something I, I haven't really teased apart properly is when it comes to something like the weather and the weather having a mind of its own or whatever, or your average you know, pulsar magnetosphere acting like a sort of intelligent thing, how does that relate to, you know, how, how, do, how is that, that entity related to the kind of consciousness that we have and sort of what would the world look like you know, to the weather? If we think about the weather as a mind, what will it perceive? What will it laws of, its laws of physics be? I don't really know. Because um, it's very parallel. It's very parallel, among other things. And it, it, it's not obvious. I mean, this is a, a, a really kind of mind-bending thing because we've got to try and imagine where, uh, you know, we've got to try and imagine a parsing of the universe different from the one we have. And by the way, when we think about extraterrestrial intelligence and so on, I think that's kind of the key thing is, you know, we've always assumed, I've always assumed okay, the extraterrestrials, at least they have the same physics. We all live in the same universe. They've got the same physics. But actually, that's not really right because the extraterrestrials could have a completely different way of parsing that the universe. So it's as if, you know, there could be, for all we know, right here in this room, you know, in the, in the details of the motion of these gas molecules, mm-hmm. there could be an amazing intelligence that we were like, but we have no way of, we're not parsing the universe in the same way. If only we could parse the universe in the right way, you know, immediately this amazing thing that's going on and this, you know, huge culture that's developed and all that kind of thing would be obvious to us, but it's not because we have our particular way of parsing the universe. Would that thing also have an agency? I don't know the right word to use, but something like consciousness, but a different kind of consciousness? I think it's a question of just what you mean by the word, because I think that the, you know, this notion of consciousness and the, okay, so some people think of consciousness as sort of a key aspect of it is that we feel that there's sort of a feeling of that we exist in some way, that we have this intrinsic feeling about ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I suspect that any of these things would also have an intrinsic feeling about themselves. I've been sort of trying to think recently about constructing an experiment about what if you were just a piece of a cellular automaton, let's say. Mm-hmm. You know, what would your feeling about yourself actually be? 
And you know, can we put ourselves in the in the shoes in the cells of the cellular automaton, so to speak? Can we can we get ourselves close enough to that that we could have a sense of what the world would be like if you were operating in that way? And it's a little difficult because you know you have to not only think about what are you perceiving, but also what's actually going on in your brain. Mm -hmm. And our brains do what they actually do. And they don't, it's, uh, you know, I think there might be some experiments that are possible with, with uh, you know, neural nets and so on, where you can have something where you can at least see in detail what's happening inside the system. And I, I've been sort of one of the, one of my projects to think about is, is there a way of kind of, uh, uh, kind of getting a sense kind of from inside the system about what its view of the world is and, and how it, how it, you know, uh, can, can we make a bridge? See, see the main issue is this, where, where you know, it's a it's a sort of philosophically difficult thing because mm. it's like we do what we do. We understand ourselves, um, at least to some extent. We, we humans we, understand ourselves. That's okay. correct. And but yet, okay. So what are we trying to do? For example, when we are trying to make a model of physics, what are we actually trying to do? Because you know, you say, well, can we work out what the universe does? Well, of course we can. We just watch the universe. The universe does what it does. Mm -hmm. But what we're trying to do when we make a model of physics is we're trying to get to the point where we can tell a story to ourselves that we understand that is also a representation of what the universe does. Yeah. So it's this kind of, you know, can we make a bridge between what we humans can understand in our minds and what the universe does? Mm -hmm. And in a sense, you know, a large part of my kind of life uh, efforts have been devoted to making computational language, which kind of is a bridge between what is possible in the computational universe and what we humans can conceptualize and think about. In a sense, what, you know, when I built Wolfram Language and our whole sort of computational language story, it's all about how do you take sort of raw computation and this ocean of computational possibility, and how do we sort of represent pieces of it in a way that we humans can understand and that map onto things that we care about doing. And in a sense, when you add physics, you're adding this other piece where we can, you know, mediated by a computer, can we get physics to the point where we humans can understand something about what's happening in it? Mm -hmm. And when we talk about an alien intelligence, it's kind of the same story. It's like, is there a way of mapping what's happening there onto something that we humans can understand? And, you know, physics, in some sense, is like our exhibit one of the story of alien intelligences. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a, you know, it's an alien intelligence in some sense. And what we're doing in making a model of physics is mapping that onto something that we understand. And I think, you know, a lot of these other things that have I've recently been kind of studying, uh, whether it's molecular biology, other kinds of things, um, which we can talk about a bit, mm -hmm. um, the, um, uh, those are other cases where we're in a sense trying to again make that bridge between what we humans understand and sort of the the natural language of that sort of alien intelligence in some sense. When you're talking about just uh, to backtrack a little bit about cellular automata being able to, uh, what's it like to be a cellular automata in the way that's equivalent to what is it like to be a conscious human mm -hmm. being? How do you approach that? So is it looking at some subset of the cellular automata, asking questions of that subset, like how the world is perceived, how yeah, you something like that. as that subset, like for that yeah. local pocket of computation, what are you able to say about the broader something like that. And that's somehow then 
can give you a sense of how to step outside of that. Right, but, but the tricky part is that that little subset, it's what it's doing is it has a view of itself. Yeah. And the question is, how do you get inside it? It's like, you know, when we with humans, right? It's like we can't get inside each other's consciousness. Mm -hmm. That doesn't really, um, you know, that doesn't really even make sense. It's like there is an experience that somebody is having, but you can perceive things from the outside, but sort of getting inside it, it, it doesn't it doesn't quite make sense. And I, you know, for me, these sort of philosophical issues and this one I have not untangled. So let's let's be um, sure. um the you know, for me, the thing that has been really interesting in thinking through some of these things is, you know, when it comes to questions about consciousness or whatever else, it's like when I can run a program and actually see pictures and, you know, make things concrete, I have a much better chance to understand what's going on than when I'm just trying to reason about things in a very abstract way. Yeah, but there, there may be a way to uh, map the program to your conscious experience. So for example, when you play a video game, you do a first person shooter, mm -hmm. you walk around inside this entity. Yep. It's a very different thing than watching this entity. So if you can somehow yeah, yeah, connect right. more and more, connect this, this full conscious experience to the subset of the cellular automata. Yeah, like, it's something like that. But the difference in the first person shooter thing is there's still your brain and your memory is still remembering, you know, you you still have, it's it's hard to, I mean, again, what one's gonna get, one is not going to actually be able to be the cellular automaton. One's gonna be able to watch what the cellular automaton does. But this is the frustrating thing that I'm trying to understand, you know, you know how to how to think about being it, so to speak. Okay, so like in virtual reality, there's a concept of immersion, like with anything, with video game, with books, mm -hmm. there's a concept of immersion. It feels like over time, if the virtual reality experience is is well done, and maybe in the future it'll be extremely well done, the immersion leads you to feel like you, you mentioned memories. You forget that you even ever existed outside that experience. Yeah. It's so immersive. I mean, you could argue sort of mathematically that you can never truly become immersed, but maybe you can. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, why can't you, know, you merge with the cellular automata? Yeah, like, right. I mean, you, well, aren't yes. you just part of the same fabric? Why can't you just like? Well, that's a good question. I mean, so so let's imagine the following scenario. Let's then imagine can you return. <laughs> What's that? Well, but, but then can you return back? Well, yeah, right. I mean, it's it's like let's imagine you've uploaded. You know, your brain is scanned. You've got every synapse, you know, mapped out. You upload everything about you, the brain simulator, you upload the brain simulator, and the brain simulator is basically, you know, some glorified cellular automaton. Mm -hmm. And then you say, well, now we've got an answer to what does it feel like to be a cellular automaton? It feels just like it felt to be ordinary you, because they're both computational systems, and they're both, you know, operating in the same way. So in a sense, but I think there's there's somehow more to it, because in, in that sense, when you're just making a brain simulator, it's just, you know, we're just saying there's another version of our consciousness. The question that we're asking is, if we tease away from our consciousness and get to something that is different, how do we make a bridge to understanding what's going on there? Mm -hmm. And you know, there's a way of thinking about this. Okay, so this is coming on to sort of questions about the existence of the universe and so on. Mm -hmm. But one of the things is there's this notion that uh, we have of rulial space. Mm -hmm. So we have this idea of this physical space, which is you know something you can move around in that's that's uh, associated with actual the extent of the spatial hypergraph. Then there's what we call branchial space, 
the space of quantum branches. So in this in this thing we call the multi-way graph of all of the sort of branching histories, mm -hmm. there's this idea of a kind of space where instead of moving around in physical space, you're moving from history to history, so to speak, mm -hmm. from one possible history to another possible history. And that's kind of a different kind of space that is the space in which quantum mechanics plays out. Mm -hmm. Quantum mechanics, like for example, oh, something like, uh, I think we're slowly understanding things like destructive interference in quantum mm -hmm. mechanics. That what's happening is branchial space is associated with phase in quantum mechanics. And what's happening is the two photons that are supposed to be interfering and destructively, destructively interfering are winding up at different ends of branchial space. And so us, as these poor observers, that are trying to, that have branching brains, that are trying to conflate together these different threads of history and say, we've really got a consistent story that we're telling here. We're really knitting together these threads of history. By the time the two photons wound up at opposite ends of branchial space, we just can't knit them together to tell a consistent story. So for us, that's sort of the analog of destructive interference. Got it. And then there's rural space too, which is the space of rules. Yes, well, that's a, that's a, another level up. So, so okay. there's there's the question. Um, actually, I, I I do want to mention one thing because it's something I've realized in recent times, and it's I think it's really really kind of cool, which is about time dilation and relativity, and it kind of helps to understand. It's something that kind of helps in understanding what's going on. So, in according to relativity, if you you know you have a clock, it's ticking at a certain rate. You send it in a spacecraft that's going at some significant fraction of the speed of light. To you as an as a observer at rest, that clock that's in the spacecraft will seem to be ticking much more slowly. And so, in other words, you know, it's kind of like the, 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 the twin who goes off to Alpha Centauri and goes very fast will age much less than the twin who's on Earth that, um, that is just hanging out where they're hanging out. Mm -hmm. Okay, why does that happen? Okay, so it has to do with what motion is. Mm -hmm. So in, in our models of physics, what is motion? Well, when you move from somewhere to somewhere, it's you're having to sort of recreate yourself at a different place in space. Mm -hmm. When you exist at a particular place and you just evolve with time, you're again, you're, you're updating yourself, you're, you're following these rules to update what happens. Well, so the question is, when you have a certain amount of computation in you, so to speak, when there's a certain amount, you know, you're computing, the universe is computing at a certain rate, you can either use that computation to work out sitting still where you are, what's going to happen successively in time, or you can use that computation to recreate yourself as you move around the universe. Mm -hmm. And so time dilation ends up being, it's, it's really cool actually that this is explainable in a, in a way that isn't just imagine the mathematics of relativity. Mm -hmm. But, but um, that time dilation is a story of the fact that as you kind of are recreating yourself as you move, you are using up some of your computation. And so you don't have as much computation left over to actually work out what happens progressively with time. Mm -hmm. So that means that time is running more slowly for you because it is you're you're using up your computation. Your, your your clock can't tick as quickly because every tick of the clock is using up some computation. But you already used that computation up on moving at you know half the speed of light or something, and so that's that's why time dilation happens. And so you can you can start. So it's kind of interesting that one can sort of get an intuition about something like that because it has seemed like just a mathematical fact about the mathematics of of special relativity and so on. Well, for me, it's a little bit confusing what the you in that picture is, because you're using up computation. Okay, so so we're simply saying the entity 
is updating itself according to the way that the universe updates itself. Mm -hmm. And the question is, your, you know, those updates, let's imagine the you is a clock, mm -hmm. okay? And the clock is, you know, there's all these little updates, the hypergraph and a sequence of updates cause the pendulum to swing back the other way and then swing back, swinging back and forth, okay? And all of the, all of those updates are contributing to the motion of the, you know, the pendulum going back and forth or the little oscillator moving, whatever it is, okay? But, but then the alternative is that's sort of situation one where the thing is at rest. Situation two, where it's kind of moving, the, the, what's happening is it is having to recreate itself. At every, at every moment, mm -hmm. the thing is going to have to do the computations to be able to sort of recreate itself at a different position in space. And that's kind of the intuition behind. So it's it's either going to spend its computation recreating itself at a different position in space, or it's going to spend its computation doing the um, uh, sort of doing the updating of the you know of the the ticking of the clock, so to speak. Mm -hmm. so, that, so the more updating is doing, the less the ticking of the clock update is doing. That's right. The more it has having to update because of motion. Yeah. The less it can update the the, the clock. So that that's um, I mean. Obviously, there's a there's a sort of mathematical version of it that relates to how it actually works in relativity. But that's kind of to me that was sort of exciting to me that it's possible to have a a really mechanically explainable story there that that isn't um, and it's similarly in quantum mechanics this notion of branching brains perceiving branching universes to me that's getting towards a sort of mechanically explainable version of what happens in quantum mechanics even though it's a little bit mind bending. Uh, to see, you know, these things about under what circumstances can you successfully knit together those different threads of history, and when do things sort of escape, and and those kinds of things. But the, you know, the thing about this physical space and physical space, the the main sort of big theory is general relativity, the theory of gravity, and that tells you how things move in physical space. In branchial space, the big theory is the Feynman path integral, mm -hmm. which it turns out tells you essentially how things move in quantum, in the space of quantum phases. So it's kind of like motion in branchial space. And it's kind of a fun thing to start thinking about what, oh, you know, all these things that we know in physical space, like uh, event horizons and black holes and so on, what are the analogous things in branchial space? For example, the speed of light, what's the analog of the speed of light in branchial space? It's the maximum speed of quantum entanglement. So the speed of light is a flash bulb goes off here, What's the maximum rate at which the effect of that flashbulb is detectable moving away in space? So similarly, in branchial space, something happens. And the question is, how far in this branchial space, in the space of quantum states, how far away can that get within a certain period of time? Mm -hmm. And so there's this notion of a maximum entanglement speed. And that might be observable. That's the thing we've been sort of poking at, is might there be a way to observe it even in some atomic physics kind of situation? Because um, one of the things that's weird in quantum mechanics is we're, you know, when we study quantum mechanics, we mostly study it in terms of small numbers of particles. You know, this electron does this, this thing on an ion trap does that, and so on. But when we deal with large numbers of particles, kind of all bets are off. It's kind of too complicated to deal with quantum mechanics. And so what ends up happening is, so this question about maximum entanglement speed and things like that may actually play in one of these, in, in the sort of story of many-body quantum mechanics, and I even have some suspicions about things that might happen even in, uh, one of the things I, I realized I'd never understood, and it's kind of embarrassing, but I think I now understand a little better, is when you have chemistry, 
and you have quantum mechanics. It's like, well, there's two carbon atoms as this molecule, and we do a reaction, and we draw a diagram, and we say, this carbon atom ends up in this place. And it's like, but wait a minute. In quantum mechanics, nothing ends up in a definite place. There's always just some wave function for this to happen. How can it be the case that we can draw these reasonable, it just ended up in this place? Mm -hmm. And you have to kind of say, well, the environment of the molecule effectively made a bunch of measurements on the molecule to keep it kind of classical. And that's a story that has to do with this whole thing about, about you know, measurements have to do with this idea of, you know, can we conclude that something definite happened? Because in quantum mechanics, the, the intrinsic quantum mechanics, the mathematics of quantum mechanics is all about, they're just these amplitudes for different things to happen. Mm -hmm. Then there's this thing of, and then we make a measurement and we conclude that something definite happened. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with this thing, I think, about sort of moving about knitting together these different threads of history and saying, this is now something where we can definitively say something definite happened. In the traditional theory of quantum mechanics, it's just like, uh, you know, after you've done all this amplitude computation, then this big hammer comes down and you do a measurement and it's all over. Mm -hmm. And that's been very confusing. For example, in quantum computing, it's been a very confusing thing because when you say, you know, in quantum computing, the basic idea is you're going to use all these separate threads of, of computation, so to speak, to do all the different parts of, you know, try these different factors for an integer or something like this. And it looks like you can do a lot because you've got all these different threads going on. But then you have to say, well, at the end of it, you've got all these threads and every thread came up with a definite answer, mm -hmm. but we got to conflate those together to figure out a definite thing that we humans can take away from it, a definite, so the computer actually produced this output. So having this uh, branch of space and this hypergraph model of physics, do you think it's possible to then make predictions that are definite about uh, many body quantum mechanical systems? I is that the hope? I think it's likely, yes. But I don't, you know, it, this is every one of these things. When you when you go from the underlying theory, which is complicated enough, and it's, and it, I mean, the theory at some level is beautifully simple. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you start actually trying to, it, it's this whole question about how do you bridge it to things that we humans can talk right. about. Yeah. It gets really complicated. And and this thing about actually getting it to a definite uh, definite prediction um, about you know definite thing you can say about chemistry or something like this. Um, you know, that's just a lot of work. So I'll give you an example. There's a thing called the quantum Zeno effect. Mm -hmm. So it, the idea is, you know, quantum stuff happens, but then if you make a measurement, you're kind of freezing time in quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. You and, and so it looks like there's a possibility that with sort of the, the relationship between the quantum Zeno effect and the way that many-body quantum mechanics works and so on, maybe, just conceivably, it may be possible to actually figure out a way to measure the the, uh, the maximum entanglement speed. Mm -hmm. And the reason we can potentially do that is because the systems we deal with in terms of atoms and things, they're pretty big. You know, a mole of atoms is, you know, is a lot of atoms. And, you know, but it isn't a very, you know, it, it's something where to get, you know, when we're dealing with how can you see 10 to the minus 100, so to speak, well, by the time you've got, you know, 10 to the 30th atoms, you're not, you know, you're within a little bit closer striking distance of that. It's not like, oh, we've just got, you know, two atoms and we're trying to see down to 10 to the minus 100 meters or whatever. So I, I don't know how it will work, but this is, a, this is a, a potential direction. And if you can tell, by the way, if we could measure the maximum entanglement speed, we would know the elementary length. These are all related. Mm -hmm. So if, if we get that one number, we just need one number. If we can get that one number, we can, you know, the theory has no parameters anymore. 
Um, and uh, you know, there are there are other places. Well, there's another another hope for doing that is in cosmology. Uh, in this model, one of the features is the universe is not fixed dimensional. I mean, we think we live in three dimensional space, but this hypergraph doesn't have any particular dimension. It can emerge as something which, on a, in an approximation, it's as if you know you say, "What's the volume of a sphere?" In the hypergraph, where a sphere is defined as how many nodes do you get to when you go a distance r away from a given point, mm -hmm. and you can say, "Well, if I get to about r cube nodes." When I go a distance r away in the hypergraph, then I'm living roughly in three-dimensional space. But you might also get to r to the point, you know, 2.92, you know, for for some value of r. In you know, as, as as r increases, that might be the, the the sort of fit to what happens. And so, one of the things we suspect is that the very early universe was essentially infinite-dimensional, and that as the universe expanded, it became lower-dimensional. And so one of the things that is another little sort of point where we, we think there might be a way to, to actually measure some things is dimension fluctuations in the early universe. That is, is there a is there leftover dimension fluctuation of at the time of the cosmic microwave background, 100,000 years or something after the beginning of the universe? Is it still the case that there are there were pieces of the universe that didn't have dimension three, that had dimension 3.01 or something? And can we tell that? Is that possible to observe? Uh fluctuations in dimensions i don't even know what that entails okay so the 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 question which should be an elementary exercise in electrodynamics mm -hmm. except it isn't is um understanding what happens to a photon when it propagates through 3.01 dimensional space yeah. so for example the inverse square law is a consequence of the you know the 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 surface area of a sphere is proportional to r squared mm -hmm. but if you're not in three dimensional space the surface area of sphere is not proportional to r squared, it's r to the whatever, 2.01 or something. Mm -hmm. um, and so that means that I think when you kind of try and do optics, you know, a, a common principle in optics is Huygens' principle, which basically says that every piece of a wavefront of, a, of, a, of, of light is a source of new spherical waves. And those spherical waves, if they're different dimensional spherical waves, will have other characteristics. And so there will be bizarre optical phenomena, which we haven't figured out yet. Um, so you're 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 what looking for some weird photon trajectories that designate that it's three point zero one dimensional space. Yeah, yeah, that would be an example of. I mean, you know, there are there are only a certain number of things we can measure about photons. You know, we can measure their polarization, we can measure their frequency, we can measure their direction, um, those kinds of things, and you know how that all works out. And, uh, you know, in, in the current models of physics, uh, you know, uh, it's been hard to explain how the universe manages to be as uniform as it is. And that's led to this inflation idea that um, to the to the great annoyance of my then collaborator, I we had we figured out in like 1979, we had this realization that that you could get something like this, but it seemed implausible that that's the way the universe worked. So we put it in a footnote, yeah. and <laughs> that was uh, so that's a. But but in any case, I've I've never really completely believed it. But this that's a, an idea for how to sort of puff out the universe faster than the speed of light. Early moments of the universe that that's the sort of the inflation idea, and that that you can somehow explain how the universe manages to be as uniform as it is. In in our model, this turns out to be much more natural because the universe just starts very connected. The hypergraph is not such that the ball that you grow starting from a single point has volume r cubed. It might have volume 
r to the 500 or r to the infinity. Um, and so that means that you you sort of naturally get this much higher degree of connectivity and uniformity in the universe. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, uh, this is sort of the mathematical physics challenge, is in the standard theory of the universe, there's the Friedman, Robertson, Walker universe, which is the kind of standard model where the universe is isotropic and homogeneous. And you can then work out the equations of general relativity, and you can figure out how the universe expands. We would like to do the same kind of thing, including dimension change. This is just difficult mathematical physics. I mean, the reason it's difficult is the sort of fundamental reason it's difficult. When when people invented calculus 300 years ago, calculus was a story of understanding change and change as a function of a variable. Mm -hmm. So people study univariate calculus, they study multivariate calculus, it's one variable, it's two variables, three variables, but whoever studied, you know, 2.5 variable calculus, turns out nobody. Turns out that, uh, but what we need to have to understand these fractional dimensional spaces, uh, which don't work like well, they're 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 spaces where where the effective dimension is not an integer. So you can't yeah. apply the tools of calculus and naturally and easily to fractional no. dimensions. No. And so and somebody has to figure out how to do that. We have yeah to yeah we're trying to figure this out. I mean it, it. it's it's very interesting. I mean it's very connected to very frontier issues in mathematics. It's very beautiful, but. So but, is it possible, is it possible, we're dealing with a scale that's so, so much smaller than our human scale. Is it possible to make predictions versus explanations? Do you have a hope that with this hypergraph model, you'd be able to make predictions? Yeah. That then yeah. could be validated with a physics experiment, predictions that couldn't have been done or weren't done otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I What's, think- which, In which domain do you think okay, that Okay, so there are gonna be cosmology ones to do with dimension fluctuations in the universe. That's a very bizarre effect. Nobody, you know, dimension fluctuation is just something, nobody ever looked for that. If anybody sees dimension fluctuation, that's a huge flag that, that, that something like our, our model is going on. If and And how one detects that, you know, that's a problem of kind of, you know, that's a problem of traditional physics in a sense of what's the best way to actually figure that out. And and for example, that that's one. There are there are all kinds of things one can imagine. I mean, there are things that um uh in black hole mergers, it's possible that there will be effects of maximum entanglement speed in large black hole mergers. Um, that's another another possible thing. And it's, all of that is detected through like what? Do you have a hope for LIGO type of situation? Like that's yeah, gravitational maybe. waves? Yeah, or, or alternatively, I mean, I think it's, you know, look, figuring out experiments is like figuring out technology inventions. Right. That is, you know, you've got a set of raw materials, you've got an underlying model, and now you've got to be very clever to figure out, you know, what is that thing I can measure that just somehow, you know, leverages into the right place. And uh, we've spent less effort on that than I would have liked because I one of the one of the reasons is that that I think that the the this you know the physicists who've been working on on our models and we've with now lots of physicists actually it's very very nice it's kind of uh, uh you know it's one of these cases where I'm almost I'm really kind of pleasantly surprised that the sort of absorption of the things we've done has been uh quite rapid and quite uh, sort of, you know, very positive. So it's a Cambrian explosion of physicists too, not just ideas. Yes, I mean, you know, a lot of what what's happened that's really interesting, and again, not what I expected, is there are a lot of areas of of sort of very uh, elaborate, sophisticated mathematical physics 
whether that's causal set theory, whether it's higher category theory, whether it's categorical quantum mechanics, all sorts of elaborate names for these things, spin networks, perhaps, uh, you know, causal dynamical triangulations, all kinds of names of, of these fields. And these fields have a bunch of good mathematical physicists in them who've been working for decades in these particular areas. And the question is, but, but they, they've been building these mathematical structures. And the mathematical structures are interesting, but they don't, they don't typically sit on anything. Mm-hmm. They're just mathematical structures. And I think what's happened is our models provide kind of a machine code that lives underneath those models. So a typical example, this is uh, um, due to Jonathan Gorod, who's one of the key people who's been working on our project. Um, this is uh, in, okay, so cause, I'll give you an example just to give a sense of how these things connect. This is in causal set theory. So the idea of causal set theory is there are, in space-time, we imagine that there's space and time. It's a three plus one dimensional you know, setup. We imagine that there are just events that happen at different times and places in space and time. And the idea of causal set theory is the only thing you say about the universe is there are a bunch of events that happen sort of randomly at different places in space and time. And then the whole sort of theory of physics has to be to do with this this graph of causal relationships between these randomly thrown down events. So they've always been confused by the fact that to get even Lorentz invariance, even relativistic invariance, you need a very special way to throw down those events. Mm. And they've had no natural way to understand how that would happen. So what Jonathan figured out is that, in fact, from our models, they instead of just generating events at random, our models necessarily generate events in some pattern in, in space-time effectively that then leads to Lorentz invariance and relativistic invariance and all those kinds of things. So it's a place where all the mathematics that's been done on, well, we just have a random collection of events. Now what, you know, what consequences does that have in terms of causal set theory and so on? That can all be kind of wheeled in now that we have some different underlying foundational idea for what what the particular distribution of events is as opposed to just what we throw down random events. Mm-hmm. And so that's a that's a typical sort of example of what we're seeing in all these different areas of kind of how you can take, you know, really interesting things that have been done in mathematical physics and connect them. And it's it's really kind of beautiful because the the you know the sort of the abstract models we have just seem to plug into all these different very interesting, very elegant abstract ideas. But we're now giving sort of a reason for that to be the way, for for a reason for one to care. I mean, it, it's like saying uh, you can you know you can think about computation abstractly. You know, you can think about I don't know combinators or something as abstract computational things, and you can sort of do all kinds of study of them. But it's like, why do we care? Well, okay, Turing machines are a good start because you can kind of see they're sort of mechanically doing things. But when we actually start thinking about computers computing things, we have a really good reason to care. And this is sort of what we're what we're providing, I think, is a reason to care about a lot of these areas of mathematical physics. So that's been that's been very nice. So I'm not sure we've ever got to the the question of why does the universe no, exist no, at all? No, let's 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 talk about that. Yes. So we're it's not the simplest question in the world. So, no. um, so it's, it takes a few steps to get to it. And it's nevertheless even surprising that you can even begin to answer this question, Indeed, as you were saying. I, I'm very surprised. So the next thing to perhaps understand is this idea of ruleal space. So we've got kind of physical space, we've got branchial space, the space of possible quantum histories, and now we've got another level 
of kind of abstraction, which is real space. And here's, the, here's where that comes from. So you say, okay, you say, we've got this model for the universe. We've got a particular rule, and we run this rule and we get the universe. Okay, so that's, that's interesting. Why that rule? Why not another rule? And so that confused me for a long time. And I realized, well, actually, what if the thing could be using all possible rules? What if at every step, in addition to saying, apply a particular rule at all places in this hypergraph, one could say, just take all possible rules and apply all possible rules at all possible places in this hypergraph, mm -hmm. okay? And then you make this ruleal multiway graph, which both is all possible histories for a particular rule and all possible rules. So the next thing you'd say is, how can you get anything reasonable out of How can anything you know, real come out of the set of all possible rules applied in all possible ways? Okay, this is a subtle thing, so which I haven't fully untangled. The There is this object, which is the result of running all possible rules in all possible ways. And you might say, if you're running all possible rules, why can't everything possible happen? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer is because when you there's sort of this entanglement that occurs. So let's say that you have a lot of different possible initial conditions, a lot of different possible states. Then you're applying these different rules. Well, some of those rules can end up with the same state. So it isn't the case that you can just get from anywhere to anywhere. There's this whole entangled structure of what can lead to what, and there's a definite structure that's produced. I think I'm gonna call that definite structure the ruliad, the limit of, um, uh, the limits of kind of uh, all possible rules being applied in all possible ways. And you're saying that structure is finite, so that somehow connects to maybe a similar kind of thing as like causal invariance. Well, so it happens the that the Rouliad necessarily has causal invariance. That's a feature of, that's just a mathematical consequence of essentially using all possible rules plus universal computation gives you the fact that from any diverging paths, you can always, the, the paths will always converge. But does that say that the Rouli, does that necessarily infer that the Rouliad is finite? In the end, it's not necessarily finite. I mean, it's it's a, it's a, the, the, just like the history of the universe may not be finite. The history of the universe, time may keep going forever. You can keep running the computations of the Rouliad and you'll keep spewing out more and more and more structure. It's like time doesn't have to end. It's, it's um, the, that, but the, the issue is there are, there are three limits that happen in this Rouliad object. One is how long you run the computation for. Another is how many different rules you're applying. And another is how many different states you start from. Mm -hmm. And the mixture of those three limits, I mean, this is just mathematically a horrendous object, okay? Yes. And what's, what's interesting about this object is the one thing that does seem to be the case about this object is it connects with ideas in higher category theory, mm -hmm. and in particular, it connects to some of the 20th century's most abstract mathematics done by this chap, Grothendieck. Um, Grothendieck had a thing called the infinity groupoid, which is closely related to this Rouliad object. Um, although the details of the relationship, uh, you know, I don't fully understand yet. Um, but I think that the what's what's interesting is this thing that is sort of this very limiting object. So so okay. So a way to think about this that that again will will take us into another direction, which is the equivalence between physics and mathematics. Mm -hmm. The way that uh, well, let's see. Uh, maybe this is um, just just to give a sense of this kind of um, groupoid and things like that. You can think about in mathematics. You can think you have certain axioms. They're kind of like atoms, and you well, actually, let's say 
let's talk about mathematics for a second. So what is mathematics? What, do, what, is, what is it made of, so to speak? Mathematics, there's a bunch of statements like uh, for addition, x plus y is equal to y plus x. That's a statement of mathematics. Mm -hmm. Another statement would be, you know, x squared minus one is equal to x plus one, x minus one. There are infinite number of these possible statements of mathematics. Well, it's not, I mean, it's not just, I guess, a statement, but with x plus y, it's a, it's a rule that you can, it's a, I mean, yes, you, you think of it as a rule. A, it's, it's a, it is a, it is a rule. It's also just a thing that is true in mathematics. Right. Um, it's a statement of truth, okay. Right. And and what you can imagine is you 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 imagine just laying out this giant kind of ocean of all all statements. Well, actually, you first start okay, this, this is where it, this we're segueing into a different thing. Let me let me not go in this direction for a second. Let's not let, go let, to meta mathematics just yet. Yeah, we'll 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 maybe get to meta mathematics, but sure. but it's it's um uh so let me not let me explain the groupoid and things later. Yes. Yeah, but but so let's come back to the universe. Um, always a good place to be in, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, so what does the universe have to do with the Ruliad, the Ruliad space, and how that's possibly connected to why the thing exists at all, right. and why okay. there's just one of them? Yes, okay, so here's the point. So the thing that had confused me for a long time was, let's say we get the rule for the universe. We hold it in our hand. We say, this is our universe. Mm -hmm. Then the immediate question is, well, why isn't it another one? And, you know, that's kind of the... You know the the sort of the lesson of Copernicus is we're not very special. So how come we got universe number three hundred and twelve and not universe quadrillion quadrillion quadrillion? Mm -hmm. And I think the resolution of that is the realization that there that the universe is running all possible rules. So then you say, well, how on earth do we perceive the universe to be running according to a particular rule? How do we perceive definite things happening in the universe? Well. It's the same story. It's the observer. There is a reference frame that we are picking in this ruleal space, and that that is what determines our perception of the universe. Mm -hmm. With our particular sensory information and so on, we are parsing the universe in this particular way. So here's the way to think about it. In, in, in physical space, we live in a particular place in the universe. And you know we could live on Alpha Centauri, but we don't. We live here. Um, and Similarly, in Ruleal space, we could live in many different places in Ruleal space, but we happen to live here. Mm. And what does it mean to live here? It means we have certain sensory input. We have certain ways to parse the universe. Those are our interpretation of the universe. What would it mean to travel in Ruleal space? What it basically means is that we are successively interpreting the universe in different ways. So in other words, to be at a different point in Ruleal space is to have a different in a sense, a different interpretation of what's going on in the universe. And we can imagine even things like an analog of the speed of light as the maximum speed of translation in Ruleal space and so on. So wait, what's the interpretation? So Ruleal space and we, is, I'm confused by the we and the interpretation and the universe. Okay. I thought moving about in Ruleal space changes the way the universe is, is. The, the, the way, way it, we would perceive it, the way that... The, so I mean, it ultimately like, has to do with the perception. So it doesn't... Real, real space is not somehow changing, like uh, branching into another universe or something like that. No, this I mean, the, 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 the point universe. is that the, the whole point of this is the Ruliad is sort of the encapsulated version of everything that is the universe running according to all possible yeah, rules. Yeah, we think of uh, our universe, the observable universe, 
as its thing. So we're a little bit loose with the word universe then, because wouldn't the Ruliad potentially encapsulate a very large number, like combinatorially large, maybe infinite set of what we phys human physicists think of as okay. universes? That's an interesting, interesting parsing of the word universe, right? Uh -huh. Because what we're saying is, just as we're at a particular place in physical space, we're at a particular place in ruleal space, at that particular place in ruleal space, our experience of the universe is this. Yeah. Just as if we lived at the center of the galaxy, our universe, our experience of the universe will be different from the one it is given where we actually live. And so in a, what we're saying is our, it, when you might say, I mean, in a sense, this, this Ruliad is sort of a super universe, so mm -hmm. to speak, um, but it's all entangled together. It's not like you can separate out. You can say, let me, you know, it's, it's like when we take a reference, okay, it's like our experience of the universe is based on where we are in the universe. Mm -hmm. We could imagine moving to somewhere else in the universe, but it's still the same universe. So there's not like universes existing in parallel. No. No, because uh, because and, and the whole point is that if we were able to change our interpretation of what's going on, we could perceive a different reference frame in this Ruliad. Yeah, but that's not that's not uh, that that's just yeah that's the same Ruliad. That's the same exactly. universe. You're just moving about. These are just right. coordinates in that right. universe. Right. But so so the way that's the reason that's interesting is imagine the extraterrestrial intelligence or mm -hmm. the alien intelligence. We should say. The alien intelligence might live on Alpha Centauri, but it might also live at a different place in real space. It can live right here on Earth. It just has a different reference frame that yes. includes a very different perception of right. the universe. Right. And then because that real space is very large, I mean... Do we get to communicate with them? Right, that's... Yeah, but it's also... Well, one uh, thing is how different the perception of the universe could be. I think it could be bizarrely, unimaginably, completely different. And I mean, one thing to realize is, even in kind of things I don't understand well, you know, I'm, I, I know about the kind of Western tradition of understanding, you know, science and all that kind of thing. And, you know, you talk to people who say, well, I, you know, I'm really into some, you know, Eastern tradition of this, that, and the other. And it's really obvious to me what, how things work. I don't understand it at all, but you know, it is not obvious, I think, with this kind of realization that there's these very different ways to interpret what's going on in the universe. That kind of gives me at least, a, it doesn't help me to understand that different interpretation, mm -hmm. but it gives me at least more respect for the possibility that there will be other interpretations. It, yeah, it humbles you to the possibility that like, what is it, reincarnation or all, all these like uh, eternal recurrence with Nietzsche, like just these ideas, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the thing that I've realized about a bunch of those things is that, you know, I've been sort of doing my little survey of the history of philosophy, just trying to understand, you know, what, what can I actually say now about some of these things? And you realize that some of these concepts, like the immortal soul concept, mm -hmm. which, you know, I remember when I was a kid and, you know, it was kind of a lots of religion bashing type stuff of people saying, you know, well, we know about physics. Tell us how much does a soul weigh? And right. people are like, well, how can it be a thing if it doesn't weigh anything? Right. Well, now we understand, you know, 
there is this notion of what's in brains that isn't the matter of brains and it's something computational. And there is a sense, and in fact, it is correct that it is in some sense immortal because this pattern of computation is something abstract that is not specific to the particular material of a brain. Now, we don't know how to extract it, you know, in our traditional scientific approach, but it's still something where it isn't a crazy thing to say there is something, it doesn't weigh anything. That's a kind of a silly question. How much does it weigh? Um, well, actually, maybe it isn't such a silly question in our model of physics because the actual computational activity has has a consequence for gravity and things, but that's a right. very There's subtle- a, You could a very start talking about kind of, mass and energy and so on. There could be a, uh, what would you call it? A solitron. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> a right. particle that, that yeah, somehow yeah. contains soulness. Yeah, right. Well, well, that's what, by the way, that's what Leibniz said. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing I've, I've never understood this, you know, Leibniz had this idea of monads and monadology, and he had this idea that, that what exists in the universe is this big collection of monads. And that they that the only thing that one knows about the monads is sort of how they relate to each other, which sounds awfully like hypergraphs, right? Mm -hmm. But Leibniz had really lost me at the following thing. He said, each of these monads has a soul, and each of them has a consciousness. And it's like, okay, I'm out of here. I don't understand this at all. I don't know what's going on. But I realized recently that in his day, the concept that a thing could do something, could spontaneously do something, that was his only way of describing that. Mm -hmm. And so what I would now say is, well, there's this, this abstract rule that runs. To Leibniz, that would have been you know, in 1690 or whatever, that would have been kind of, well, it has a soul, it has a consciousness. Um, and so, you know, in a sense, it's, it's like one of these, there's no new idea under the sun, so to speak. That's, you know, that's a sort of a version of, of the same kinds of ideas, but couched in terms that are sort of bizarrely different from the ones that we would use today. Would you be able to maybe play devil's advocate on the, your conception of consciousness that, uh, like the, the two characteristics of it that is constrained and there's a single thread of time. Is it possible that Leibniz was onto something that the the basic atom, the screw atom of space has a consciousness? Is is that, uh, so these are just no. words, right? But like yeah. what, uh, what is there, is there some sense where consciousness is much more fundamental than you're making it seem? I don't know. I mean, the, you know, I like, think- Can you construct that, a world in which it is much more fundamental? I think that, okay, so the question would be, is there a way to think about kind of, uh, if we sort of parse the universe down at the level of atoms of space or something, could we say, well, so, so that's really a question of a different point of view, a different place in real space. We're asking, you're asking the question, could there be a civilization that exists? Could there be sort of uh, conscious entities that exist at the level of atoms of space, and what would that be like? And I think that comes back to this question of can we, you know, what's it like to be a cellular automaton type thing? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not yet there. I, I don't know. I mean, I think that the, this is a, and I don't even know yet quite how to think about this in the sense that I was considering, you know, I'm, I never write fiction, but I haven't written it since I was like 10 years old. And my, my fiction, I, I made one attempt, which I sent to some science fiction writer friends of mine, and they told me it was terrible. So, but- um, This is a long time ago? No, it was recently. Recently, they said it was terrible. That'd be interesting to see you write a short story based on uh, what sounds like it's already inspiring short stories by, or stories yeah, right. by science but, fiction writers. But but I think the, the interesting thing for me is, you know, in the what does it, what is it like to be a whatever? 
Yeah. How do you describe that? I mean, it's like that's not a thing that you describe in mathematics. That what is it like to be such and such? Well, see, to me, when you say what is it like to be something, presumes that you're talking about a singular entity. So, yeah, like there, there, there's a some kind of feeling of the the entity, the the stuff that's inside of it and the stuff that's outside of it, mm -hmm. and then that's when consciousness starts making sense. But but then um, it seems like that could be generalizable. If you take some subset of uh, a cellular automata, you could start talking about what does that subset Maybe. Uh, feel. But then you can, I think you could just take arbitrary numbers of subsets. Like to me, uh, uh, like you and I uh, individually are consciousnesses, but you could also say, the two of us together is a singular conscious. Maybe, maybe. I'm not so sure about that. I think that the single thread of time thing may be pretty important. And that as soon as you start saying there are two different threads of time, there are our two different experiences, and then we have to say, how do they relate? How are they sort of entangled with each other? I mean, that may be a different story of a thing that isn't much like, you know, the, 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 what do the ants, you know, what's it like to be an ant, mm -hmm. you know, where there's a sort of more collective view of the world, so to speak? I don't know. I think that, um, I mean, this is, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't really have a good, I mean, uh, you know, my, my best thought is, you know, can we turn it into a human story? It's like the question of, you know, when we try and understand physics, can we turn that into something which is sort of a human understandable narrative? Mm -hmm. And now what's it like to be a such and such? You know, maybe the only medium in which we can describe that is something like fiction, where it's kind of like you're telling, you know, the life story in that in that uh, in that setting. But I, I'm this is this is beyond what I've what I've yet understood how to do. Yeah, but it, it does seem so. Like with human consciousness, you know, we're made up of cells, and like there, there's a bunch of systems that are networked mm -hmm. that work together. That at this at the human level feel like a singular consciousness when you take yes and so maybe like an ant colony is just too low level sorry an ant is too low level right maybe you have to look at the ant colony yeah i agree like, there's some level at which it's a conscious being and then if you right. go to the planetary scale then maybe that's going too far so there's a nice sweet spot yeah right for consciousness no i mean I, I agree i think i think the difficulty is that you know okay so in sort of people who Talk about consciousness. Yes, one of the one of the terrible things I've realized because I've now interacted with with some of this community, so to speak, some interesting people who do that kind of thinking. But you know, one of the things I was saying to one of the leading people in that area, I was saying, you know, uh, that um, you know, it must be kind of frustrating because it's kind of like a poetry story. That is, many people are writing poems, but few people are reading them. Yes. So there are always these different, you know, everybody has their own theory of consciousness and they are very non-inter, sort of inter-discussable. And, and by the way, I mean, you know, my own approach to sort of the, the question of consciousness, as far as I'm concerned, I'm an applied consciousness operative, so to speak, because mm -hmm. I don't really, in a sense, the thing I'm trying to get out of it is how does it help me to understand what's a possible theory of physics? Mm -hmm. And how does it help me to say, how do I go from this, this incoherent collection of things happening in the universe to our definite perception and definite laws and so on? And mm -hmm. it's sort of an, an applied version of consciousness. And, and I think the reason, it sort of segues to a different kind of topic, but the reason that um, 
uh, one of the things I'm particularly interested in is kind of what's the analog of consciousness in systems very different from brains? And so why does that matter? Well, you know, this whole description of this kind of, uh, uh, well, actually, you know what, we, we haven't talked about why the universe exists. So let's, let's get to why the universe exists. And then we, then we can, can talk about uh, perhaps a little bit about what these models of physics kind of show you about other kinds of things like molecular computing and so on. Yes, but let's, okay, that's good. Why does the universe exist? Okay, so we finally sort of more or less set the stage. We've got this idea of this Rouliad, of this object that is made from following all possible rules, the fact that it's sort of not just this incoherent mess, it's got all this entangled structure in it, and so on. Okay, mm -hmm. so what is this Rouliad? Well, it is the working out of all possible formal systems. So the, the sort of the question of why does the universe exist, its core question, which you kind of started with is, You've got two plus two equals four. You've got some other abstract result, but that's not actualized. It's just an abstract thing. And when we say we've got a model for the universe, okay, it's this rule, you run it and it'll make the universe. But it's like, but, but you know, where's it actually running? What, 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 is, what is it actually doing, right? What, what is, is it actual or is it merely a formal description of something, mm -hmm. okay? So the thing to realize with this, with this, the, the thing about the Rouliad is it's an inevitable, it is the entangled running of all possible rules. So you don't get to say, it's not like you're saying, which Rouliad are you picking? Because it's all possible formal rules. Mm -hmm. It's not like it's just, um, you know, well, actually it's only footnote. The only footnote, it's an important footnote, is it's all possible computational rules, not hypercomputational rules. That is, it's running all the rules that would be accessible to a Turing machine, but it is not running all the rules that would be accessible to a thing that can solve problems in finite time that would take a Turing machine infinite time to solve. So you can, even Alan Turing knew this, that you could make oracles for Turing machines, where you say a Turing machine can't solve the halting problem for Turing machines. It can't know what will happen in any Turing machine after an infinite time in any finite time, but you could invent a box, just make a black box, you say, I'm gonna sell you an oracle that will just tell you, you know, press this button, it'll tell you what the Turing machine will do after an infinite time. Mm -hmm. You can imagine such a box. You can't necessarily build one in the physical universe, but you can imagine such a box. And so we could say, well, in addition to, so in this Rouliad, we're imagining that there is a computational, that at the end, it's, it's running rules that are computational. It doesn't have a bunch of uh, Oracle black boxes in it. You say, well, why not? Well, it turns out if there are Oracle black boxes, the Rouliad that is, you can make a sort of super Rouliad that contains those Oracle black boxes, but it has a cosmological event horizon relative to the first one. They can't communicate. In other words, you can you can end up with what you end up happening. What ends up happening is it's 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 like in the physical universe. We in this causal graph that represents the causal relationships of different things, you can have an event horizon where there's where the causal graph is disconnected, where the effect here, an event happening here, does not affect an event happening here because there's a disconnection in the causal graph, mm -hmm. and that's what happens in an event horizon. And so, the what will happen between this kind of the ordinary Rouliad and the hyper Rouliad is there is an event horizon, and you you know we in our Rouliad will just never know that there is that they're, they're, they're just separate things. They're not they're not connected.
maybe I'm not understanding, but just because we can't observe it, uh, why does that mean it doesn't exist? Um, so, you, it might exist, but it does. It's not clear what it. It's, it's so what, so to speak, whether it exists. I mean, you know, what we're trying to understand is why does our universe exist? We're not trying to ask the question, what. Uh, you know, it's. Let me say another thing. I, let me make a, a meta comment, okay? Mm -hmm. Which is that that I have not thought through this hyperruliad business properly. So I'm, I'm I can't the 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 the, 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 the hyperruliad is referring to a ruliad in which hypercomputation is possible. That's correct. Yes. Okay. So like what the that footnote, the footnote to the footnote is we're not sure why this is important. Yeah, that's right. So let's let's ignore that. Okay, it's already abstract enough. Okay, it. so so okay. So the the one question is, we have to say if we're saying why does the universe exist? One question is why is it this universe and not another universe? Yeah. Okay. So the the important point about this Rouliard idea is that it's in the Rouliard are all possible formal systems. So there's no choice being made. There's no, there's no like, oh, we picked this particular universe and not that one. That's the first thing. The second thing is the that we have to ask the question. So, so you say, why does two plus two equals four exist? That's not really a that is a thing that necessarily is that way, just on the basis of the meaning of the terms, two and plus and equals and so on. Right? So the thing is that this this Rouliard object is in a sense a necessary object. It is just a thing that is the consequence of working out the consequence of the formal definition of things. You don't. It, it is not a thing where you're saying, and this is picked as the particular thing. This is just something which necessarily is that thing because of the definition of what it means to have computation. So, so. it's a really a, it's a formal system. Yes, but does it exist? Ah, well. Uh, where are we in this whole thing? We are part of this Rouliad. And so our so there is no sense to say, does two plus two equals four exist? Well, that's that's in some sense it necessarily exists. It's a necessary object. It's not a thing that where you can ask. Uh, you know, it's it's usually in, in philosophy there's a sort of distinction made between uh, you know, necessary truths, contingent truths, analytic propositions, synthetic propositions, there are a variety of different versions of this. They're things which are necessarily true just based on the definition of terms, and there are things which happen to be true in our universe. But we're, we're, we don't exist in rural space. We That's one of the coordinates that define our existence, right? Is well, that... okay, so, so yes, yes, but this Rouliard is the set of all possible real coordinates. So what we're saying is, it contains that. So what we're saying is, we exist as, okay, so our perception of what's going on is we're at a particular place in this Rouliad, and we are concluding certain things about how the universe works based on that. Mm -hmm. But the question is, do we understand, you know, is there something where we say, so, so why does it work that way? Well, the answer is, I think it has to work that way because this there isn't this Rouliard is a necessary object in the sense that it is a purely formal object, just like two plus two equals four. It's not an object 
that was made of something. It's an object that is just an expression of the necessary collection of formal relations that exist. And so then the issue is, can we, in our experience of that, is it, you know, can we have tables and chairs, so to speak, in that just by virtue of our experience of that necessary thing? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what people have generally thought, and honestly, that, that I don't know of a, a lot of discussion of this, why does the universe exist question. Mm -hmm. It's been a very, you know, I've been surprised actually at, at how little, I mean, I think it's one of these things that's really uh, kind of far out there. But the thing that that is, the, you know, the surprise here is that all possible formal rules, when you run them together, and that's the critical thing, when you run them together, they produce this kind of entangled structure mm -hmm. that has a definite structure. It's not just a, you know, a random arbitrary thing. It's a thing with definite structure. Right. And that structure is the thing, when we are embedded in that structure, when when anything, you know, the, an entity embedded in that structure perceives something which is then we can interpret as physics and things like this. Right. So in other words, we don't have to ask the question, the, the, the why does it exist? It necessarily exists. I'm missing this part. Why does it necessarily exist? Okay, okay. Let me, so let like me you need to have it if you want to formalize the relation between entities, but why did why do you need to have relations? Okay, okay. So so let's say you say um, well It's like why does math have to exist? Okay. That's the fair question. Yeah. yeah, okay, fair question. Um, let's see. I think the thing to think about is the existence of mathematics is something where given a definition of terms, what follows from that definition inevitably follows. So now you can say, why define any terms? But in a sense, the, well, that, that's okay. So the, the definition of terms, I mean, I think the way to think about this, let me see. So like concrete terms. Well, they're just not very the concrete. I mean, they're just things like, you know, um, um, logical or. Right, but these... that's a thing. That's a powerful thing. Well, it's a, it's a th yes, okay, but it's it's a, the, the point is that it is not a thing of a, you know, people imagine there is, I don't know, the uh, uh, you know an elephant or something, mm -hmm. or the you know elephants are presumably not necessary objects. They are they happen to exist mm -hmm. as a result of kind of biological evolution and whatever else. But the the thing is that in some sense that there is it is a different kind of thing to say does plus exist. The the it well, is not it's, it's not not like an elephant. So a plus is seems more fundamental, more basic than an elephant. Yes, but right. you can imagine a world without plus or anything like it. Like why do formal things that are discrete that can be used to reason have to exist? Or uh, well, uh, okay. So why? Okay. So that then the question is, but the whole point is computation. We can certainly imagine computation. That is, we can certainly say there is a formal system that we can construct abstractly in our minds that is computation. And that that's the um uh and you know we can we can imagine it. Right. Yeah. Now the question is um is it is that formal system 
once we exist as observers embedded in that formal system, that's enough to have something which is like our universe. Yeah. And so then the then what you're kind of asking is perhaps is why I mean the point is we definitely can imagine it. There's nothing that says that we we're not saying that uh, there's it's sort of inevitable that that is a thing that we can imagine. We don't have to ask does it exist. We're just it is definitely something we can imagine. Mm -hmm. Now that's then we have this thing that is a formally constructible thing that we can imagine. And now we have to ask the question, what, you know, given that formally constructible thing, what is, uh, what consequences does that, if we were to perceive that formally, if, if we were embedded in that formally constructible thing, what would we perceive about the world? And we would say, we perceive that the world exists because we are we are seeing all of this mechanism of all these things happening and but that's something that is just a feature of it's 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 something where we are see another this. way of asking this that I'm trying to get at I understand why it feels like uh, this uh Ruliad is necessary mm -hmm. but maybe it's just me being human but it feels like then you should be able to not us, but somehow step outside of the Ruliad. Like, what's outside the Ruliad? Well, the Ruliad is all formal systems, so there's nothing because. But that's what a everything. human would say. I know that's what a human would say because we're used to the idea that there are there's. But the whole point is that by the time it's all possible formal systems, it, it's it's like it is all things you can imagine, but. No, but all computations you can imagine, but like we don't. Well, so the, the we issue don't, is that can could be we other... encode? Okay, so so that's a that's a fair question. Is it possible to encode uh, all? I mean, once we is is there something that isn't what we can represent formally? Right. That is that is yeah. is there something that um and that's I think related to the hyperruliad footnote, so to speak, <laughs> of um which uh, yeah, um, I'm, yeah, I'm afraid yeah, yeah. that the you know one of the things sort of interesting about this is you know there has been some discussion of this in theology and things like that, um but uh, which I don't necessarily understand all of um but the 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 key sort of new input is this idea that. All possible formal systems. It's like, you know, if you make a world, people say, well, you make a world with a particular, in a particular way, with particular rules. But no, you don't do that. You can make a world that deals with all possible rules. And then merely by virtue of living in a particular place in that world, so to speak, we have the perception we have of, of what the world is like. Now, I have to say, the, the, um, uh, it's sort of interesting because I've, you know, I wrote this piece about this, and I, I, you know, this philosophy stuff is not super easy. Mm -hmm. And I, I've, uh, um, I, as I'm, as I'm talking to you about it, and I actually haven't, you know, people have been interested in lots of different things we've been doing, but this, why does the universe exist, has been, I would say, one of the one of the ones that you would think people will be most interested in, but actually, I think they're just like, oh, that's just something complicated yeah. that that. Um, so, so I haven't. I haven't explained it as as much as I've explained a bunch of other things, and I have to say, I think I I think I may be missing a couple of pieces of that argument mm -hmm. that um, uh, would be so. So it's kind of a like. A, well, like your your um, conscious being is computationally bounded, so you're missing. Indeed, having written Indeed. quite a few 
articles yourself, you, you're now missing some of the pieces. Yes, right. That's well, the limitation it's, it's, it's a, of being human. Right. One of the consequences of this, why the, why the universe exists thing and this kind of concept of Ruliads and, and uh, you know, places in there representing our perception of the universe and so on, one of the weird consequences is if the universe exists, mathematics must also exist. Mm -hmm. And that's a weird thing because mathematics, people have been very confused, including me, have been very confused about um, uh, the, the, the question of, of kind of what uh, what is the foundation of mathematics? What is what kind of a thing is mathematics? Is mathematics something where we just write down axioms like Euclid did for geometry and we just build the structure and we could have written down different axioms and we'd have a different structure? Or is it something that has a more fundamental sort of truth to it? And I have to say, it's one of these cases where I've, I've long believed that mathematics has a great deal of arbitrariness to it, that there are particular axioms that kind of got written down by the Babylonians. And, uh, you know, that's what we've ended up with the mathematics that we have. And I have to say, actually, my, my wife has been telling me for 25 years, she's a mathematician. She's been telling me, you're wrong about the foundations of mathematics. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I'm like, no, 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 I know what I'm talking about. And finally, uh, she's, she's much more right than, than I've been. So it, it's, um, it's one so, of the- uh, So, I mean, uh, her sense and your sense, are we just, uh, so this is to the question of uh, meta-mathematics, are we just kind of on a trajectory through rural space, except in mathematics, through a trajectory of a certain kind of- uh, I think that's partly the, the idea. So, so I think that the notion is this. So a hundred years ago, a little bit more than 100 years ago. Well, people have been doing mathematics for ages, but then in the in the late 1800s, people decided to try and formalize mathematics and say, you know, it is mathematics is, you know, we're going to break it down. We're going to make it like logic. We're going to make it out of out of sort of fundamental primitives. And that was people like Frege and Piano and Hilbert and so on. And they kind of got this idea of let's do kind of Euclid, but even better. Mm -hmm. Let's just make everything just in terms of this sort of symbolic axioms and then build up mathematics from that. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, they thought at the time, as soon as they get these symbolic axioms, that they made the same mistake, the kind of computational irreducibility mistake. They thought as soon as we've written down the axioms, then it'll just we'll just have a machine kind of a super mathematica so to speak that can just grind out all true theorems of mathematics mm -hmm. that got exploded by Gödel's theorem which is basically the story of computational irreducibility it's that even though you know those underlying rules you can't deduce all the consequences in any finite way mm -hmm. and so so that was but now the question is okay so they broke mathematics down into these axioms and they say now you build up from that mm -hmm. so what i'm increasingly uh, coming to realize is that's similar to saying, let's take a gas and break it down into molecules. There's gas laws that are the large scale structure and so on that we humans are familiar with. Mm -hmm. And then there's the underlying molecular dynamics. Mm -hmm. And I think that the axiomatic level of mathematics, which we can access with automated theorem proving and proof assistance and these kinds of things, that's the molecular dynamics of mathematics. And occasionally we see through to that molecular dynamics. We see undecidability, we see other things like this. One of the things I've always found very mysterious is that Gödel's theorem shows that there are sort of things which cannot be finitely proved in mathematics. There are proofs of arbitrary length, infinite length proofs that you might need. Mm -hmm. But in practical mathematics, mathematicians don't typically run into this. They just uh, happily go along doing their mathematics. And I think what's actually happening is that what they're doing is they're looking at this 
they are essentially observers in metamathematical space. And they are picking a reference frame in metamathematical space. And they are computationally bounded observers in metamathematical space, which is causing them to deduce that the laws of metamathematics and the laws of mathematics, like the laws of fluid mechanics, are much more understandable than this underlying molecular dynamics. Mm -hmm. And so what gets really bizarre is thinking about kind of the analogy between metamathematics, this idea of, of you exist in this kind of, uh, um, in the sort of space of possible, um, in this kind of mathematical space where the, where the individual kind of uh, points in the, in the mathematical space are statements in mathematics and they're connected by proofs where one statement, you know, you take a couple of different statements, you can use those to prove some other statement, and you've got this whole network of, of proofs. That's the kind of causal network of mathematics, of what can prove what and so on. And you can say at any moment in the history of, of a mathematician, of a single mathematical consciousness, you are in a single kind of slice of this kind of metamathematical space. You you know a certain set of mathematical statements. Mm -hmm. You can then deduce with proofs, you can deduce other ones, and so on. You're kind of gradually moving through metamathematical space. And so it's kind of the view is that the reason that mathematicians perceive mathematics to have the sort of integrity and lack of kind of undecidability and so on that they do is because they, like we as, as observers of the physical universe, we have these limitations associated with computational boundedness, single thread of time, consciousness limitations, basically, mm -hmm. that the same thing is true of mathematicians perceiving sort of metamathematical space. And, and so what's happening is that when you look at, if, if you look at one of these formalized mathematics systems, something like, you know, Pythagoras' theorem, mm -hmm. it'll be, it'll take, oh, I don't know, uh, what is it, maybe 10,000 individual little steps to prove Pythagoras' theorem. Mm -hmm. And one of the bizarre things that's a, a sort of an empirical fact that I'm trying to understand a little bit better, if you look at different proof assistants, if you look at different formalized mathematics systems, they actually have different axioms underneath, but they can all prove Pythagoras' theorem. And so, in other words, it's a little bit like what happens with gases. We can have air molecules, we can have water molecules, but they still have fluid dynamics. Both mm -hmm. of them have fluid dynamics. And so, similarly, at the level that mathematics, that mathematicians care about mathematics, it's way above the molecular dynamics, so mm -hmm. to speak. And there are all kinds of weird things. Like, for example, one thing I was realizing recently is the, the quantum theory of mathematics. That's a very bizarre idea. But um, basically, when you prove what is, you know, a proof is... You've got one statement in mathematics, you go through other statements, you eventually get to a statement you're trying to prove, for mm -hmm. example. That's a path, path in metamathematical space. Mm -hmm. And that's a single path. A single proof is a single path. Mm -hmm. But you can imagine there are other proofs of the same result. Mm -hmm. They're a bundle of proofs. There's this whole set of possible proofs. Yeah, you could think of it as branching, similar to the quantum mechanics model that exactly. you were talking about. Exactly. And so, and the, then there's this, some invariance that you can formalize in the same way that you can for the quantum mechanical. Right. So the question is, in in proof space, you know, as you start thinking about multiple proofs, are there analogs of, for example, destructive uh, interference of multiple proofs? Right. So here's a bizarre idea. It's just a couple of days old, so not not yet fully formed. But um, as you try and do that, when you have two different proofs. It's like two photons going in different directions. You have two proofs which at an intermediate stage are incompatible. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like destructive interference. Is it possible for this to instruct the engineering of automated proof systems? Is Absolutely. It? I mean, as a practical matter, I mean, the, you know, 
this whole question, in fact, Jonathan Gorard has a nice heuristic for automated theorem provers that's based on our physics project that is looking for essentially using kind of um, using energy. Ener in, in our models, energy is kind of the level of activity in this hypergraph. And so there's sort of a heuristic for automated theorem proving about how do you pick which path to go down mm -hmm. that uh, is based on essentially physics. Um, and I mean, the thing that, that gets interesting about this is, is the way that one can sort of have the interplay between, uh, like, for example, a black hole. What is a black hole in mathematics? So the answer is, what, what is a black hole in physics? A black hole in physics is where, in the simplest form of black hole, time ends. Mm -hmm. That is all, you know, everything is, is crunched down to the space-time singularity, mm -hmm. and everything just ends up at that singularity. So in our models, and that's a little hard to understand in general relativity with continuous mathematics and what does singularity look like. In our models, it's something very pragmatic. It's just you're applying these rules, time is moving forward, and then there comes a moment where the rules, no rules apply. So time stops. It's kind of like the universe dies. The, you know, the, the, nothing happens in the universe anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, in mathematics, that's a decidable theory. That's a theory. So th theories which have undecidability, which are things like arithmetic, set theory, all the serious models, theories in mathematics, they all have the feature that there are proofs of arbitrarily long length. Mm -hmm. In something like Boolean algebra, which is a decidable theory, there are, you know, any question in Boolean algebra, you can just go crunch, 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 and in a known number of steps, you can answer it. You know, satisfiability, uh, you know, might be hard, but it's still a bounded number of steps mm -hmm. to answer any satisfiability problem. And so that's the the notion of a black hole in physics, where time stops. That's the the that's analogous to in mathematics, where there aren't infinite length proofs. Where when in physics, uh, you know, you can wander around the universe forever if you don't run into a black hole. If you run into a black hole and time stops, you're done. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing in mathematics between decidable, decidable theories and undecidable theories. So that's a, it's an example. And I think we're sort of the, the, the attempt to understand. So, so another question is kind of what is the, what is the general relativity of, uh, of metamathematics? What is the bulk theory of metamathematics? Mm -hmm. So in the literature of mathematics, there are about 3 million theorems that people have, have published. And those represent, it's kind of on this, it's like, like on the earth. We would be, you know, uh, you know, we've put cities in particular places on the Earth, but yet there is ultimately, you know, we know the Earth is roughly spherical, and there's an underlying space, and we could just talk about, you know, the world of space in terms of where our cities happen to be, but there's actually an underlying space, and so the question is, what's that for metamathematics? And as we kind of explore, what is for example, for mathematics, which is always likes taking sort of abstract limits. Mm -hmm. So an obvious abstract limit for mathematics to take is the limit of the future of mathematics. That is, <laughs> yeah. what will be, you know, the ultimate structure of mathematics. Yeah. And one of the things that's an empirical observation about mathematics that's quite interesting is that a lot of theories in one area of mathematics, algebraic geometry or something, <laughs> might have, they play into another area of mathematics. That, that that same the same kind of fundamental construct seem to occur in very different areas of mathematics, and that's structurally captured a bit with category theory and things like that. But I think that there's probably an understanding of this metamathematical space that will explain why different areas of mathematics ultimately sort of map into the same thing. And and I mean, you know, my little challenge to myself is what's time dilation in um, uh, in metamathematics? In other words, as you as you Basically, as you move around in this mathematical space of possible statements, um, you know what's 
how does that moving around, it's basically what's happening is that as you move around in the space of mathematical statements, it's like you're changing from algebra to geometry to whatever else. And you're trying to prove the same theorem. But as you try, if you keep on moving to these different places, it's slower to prove that theorem because you keep on having to translate what you're doing yeah. back to where you started from. And that's kind of the beginnings of the analog of time dilation in metamathematics. Mm -hmm. Plus there's probably fractional dimensions in this space as well. Oh, th this space is a very messy space. Mm -hmm. This space is much messier than physical space. I mean, even in, even in the models of physics, physical space is, is very tame compared to branchial space and mm -hmm. rural space. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the mathematical structure, you know, branchial space is probably more like Hilbert space, but it's a rather complicated Hilbert space. And rural space is more like this weird infinity groupoid story of growth and deke. And, and, you know, I can explain that a little bit because in, you know, in, in metamathematical space, a, a path in metamathematical space is, a, is a, a path between two statements is a way to get by proofs, is a way to find a proof that goes from one statement to another. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things you can do, you can think about is you've got, between statements, you've got proofs. And they are paths between statements. Okay, so now you can go to the next level and you can ask, what about a mapping from one proof to another? And so that's in, in category theory, that's kind of a higher category, the notion of higher categories where you're, where you're mapping not just, between, not just between objects, but you're mapping between the mappings between objects and mm -hmm. so on. And so you can keep doing that. You can keep saying higher order proofs. I want mappings between proofs between proofs and so on. And that limiting structure, oh, by the way, one thing that's very interesting is imagine in proof space, you've got these two proofs. Mm -hmm. And the question is, what is the topology of proof space? In other words, if you take these two paths, can you continuously deform them into each other? Or is there some big hole in the middle that prevents you from continuously deforming them one into the other? It's kind of like, you know, when you when you think about some, I don't know, some puzzle, for example, you're moving pieces around on some puzzle, and you can think about the space of possible states of the puzzle, and you can make this graph that shows from one state of the puzzle to another state of the puzzle and so on. And sometimes you can easily get from one state to any other state, but sometimes there'll be a hole in that space. And there'll be, you know, you always have to go around the circuitous route to get from here to there. There won't be any direct way. That's kind of a, a question of, of whether there's sort of an obstruction in the space. And so the question is in proof space, what is the, what are, you know, what does it mean if there's an obstruction in proof space? Yeah, I don't even know what an uh, uh, obstruction means in proof space, because for it to be an obstruction, it should be reachable some other way from some other place. Right, well, so this is like an un unreachable part of the graph. No, it's not just an unreachable part. It's a part where there are paths that go one way, there are paths that go the other way. And this question of homotopy in mathematics is this question, can you continuously deform you know, from one path to another path, or do you have to go in a, in a jump, so to speak? So, okay. so it's like it. if you're going around a sphere, for example, if you're going around, a, uh, I don't know, a, a cylinder or something, you can wind yeah. around one way mm -hmm. and you can, there's no, there are paths where you can, where you can easily deform one path into another because it's just sort of sitting on the same side of the cylinder. But when you've got something that winds all the way around a cylinder, you can't continuously deform that down to a point because it's it's stuck, wrapped around Well, my intuition about proof space is you should be able to deform it. I mean, because then otherwise it doesn't even make sense because if the topology matters of the way you move about the space, then I don't even know what that means. Well, what it would mean is that you would have one way of doing a proof of something over here in algebra, yeah. And another way of doing a proof of something over here in geometry, and there would not be an intermediate way 
to map between those proofs. But how would that be possible if they start at the same place and end at the same place? Well, it's the same thing as, as uh, you know, we've got points on a, you know, if, if we've got paths on a cylinder. Now, I understand how it works in physical space, but it just doesn't, it feels like proof space shouldn't have that. I, I, okay. I mean, I, I'm not sure. I don't okay. know. We, right. We'll know very soon because we get to do some experiments. This is the great thing about this stuff is that, in fact, you know, I, I'm in the next few days, I hope to do a bunch of experiments on this. So, so you're playing with like proofs in in this kind of space. Yes. Know? Yes. I mean, so, so, you know, this is toy, you know, theories and, you know, we've got good. So, so this kind of segues to perhaps another thing, which is this whole idea of multi-computation. Mm-hmm. So this, this, um, is another kind of bigger idea that, so, okay, th- this has to do with how do you make models of things? Mm-hmm. And it's going to, it, it's, um, so I, I've sort of claimed that there've been sort of four epochs in the history of making models of things. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and that this multi-computation thing is is the fourth, is a new epoch. What are the first three? The first one is is back in antiquity, ancient Greek times. People were like, what's the universe made of? Oh, it's made of, you know, everything is water, Thales, you know, or everything is made of atoms. It's sort of what are things made of? Or, the, you know, there are these crystal spheres that represent where the planets are and so on. Mm-hmm. It's like a structural idea of how the universe is constructed. There's no real notion of dynamics. It's just what is the universe? How is the universe made? Then we get to the 1600s and we get to the sort of revolution of mathematics being introduced into physics. And then we have this kind of idea of you write down some equation. The What happens in the universe is the solving of that equation. Time enters, but it's usually just a parameter. We just can mm-hmm. you know, sort of slide it back and forth and say, here's, here's where it is. Okay, then we come to this kind of computational idea that I kind of uh, started really pushing in the, in the 19, early 1980s as a result, you know, the things we were talking about before about complexity, that was my motivation. But the bigger story was the story of kind of computational models of things. Mm-hmm. And the big difference there from the mathematical models is in mathematical models, there's an equation, you solve it, you got kind of slide time to the place where you want it. In computational models, you give the rule and then you just say, go run the rule. And time is not something you get to slide. Time is something where it just, you run the rule, time goes in steps, and that's how you work out what, how the system behaves. You don't, time is not just a parameter. Time is something that is about the running of these, of these rules. And so there's this computational irreducibility. You can't jump ahead in time, but there's still, important thing is there's still one thread of time. Mm-hmm. It's still the case, you know, the cellular automaton state, then it has the next state and the next state and so on. The thing that is kind of, we were sort of tipped off by quantum mechanics in a sense, although it it actually feeds back even into relativity and things like that, that there are these multiple threads of time. Mm-hmm. And so in this multi-computation paradigm, the kind of idea is instead of there being this single thread of time, there are these kind of distributed asynchronous threads of time that are happening. And the thing that's sort of different there is if you want to know what happened, if you say what happened in the system, in the case of the computational paradigm, you just say, well, after a thousand steps, we got this result, mm-hmm. right? But in the multi-computational paradigm, after a thousand steps, not even clear what a thousand steps means because mm-hmm. you've got all these different threads of time, but there is no state. There's all these different possible, mm-hmm. you know, there's all these different paths. And so the only way you can know what happened is to have some kind of observer who is saying, here's how to parse the results of what was going on. 
Right, but that observer is embedded and they don't have a complete picture, so. In the case of physics, that's right, yes. And in in the, but that's, but so the idea is that in this multi-computation setup, that it's this idea of these multiple threads of time and models that are based on that. And this is similar to what people think about in non-deterministic computation. Mm -hmm. So you have a Turing machine, usually it has a definite state, it follows another state, it follows another state. But typically what people have done when they've thought about these kinds of things is they've said, well, there are all these possible paths. A non-deterministic Turing machine can follow all these possible paths, but we just want one of them. We just want Mm -hmm. the one that's the winner that factors the number or whatever else. Mm Um, and similarly, you know, it's the same story in logic programming and so on, where we say, we've got this goal, find us a path to that goal. Mm-hmm. I just want one path, then I'm happy. Mm-hmm. Or theorem proving, same story. I just want one proof and then I'm happy. What's happening in multi-computation in physics is we actually care about many paths. And well, there is a case, for example, probabilistic programming is a version of multi-computation in which you're looking at all the paths, you're just asking for probabilities of things. Um, But in a sense, in physics, we're taking different kinds of samplings. For example, in quantum mechanics, we're taking a different kind of sampling of all these multiple paths. Um, But the thing that is notable is that when when you're an observer embedded in this thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, with various other sort of footnotes and so on, it is inevitable that the thing that you parse out of this system looks like general relativity and quantum mechanics. Um, in other words, that just by the very structure of this multi-computational setup, it inevitably is the case that you have certain uh, emergent laws. Now, why is this perhaps not surprising? In thermodynamics and statistical mechanics, there are sort of inevitable emergent laws of sort of gas dynamics that are independent of the of the details of the molecular dynamics, sort of the same kind of thing. But I think what happens is, what's a sort of a funny thing that I've just been understanding very recently, is when, when I kind of introduced this whole sort of computational paradigm, complexity-ish thing back in the 80s, it was kind of like a big downer because it's like, there's a lot of stuff you can't say about what systems will do. Mm-hmm. And then what I realized is, and then you might say, now we've got multi-computation, it's even worse. You know, it isn't just one thread of time that we can't explain. It's all these threads of time. We can't explain anything. But the following thing happens. Because there is all this irreducibility, and any detailed thing you might want to answer, it's very hard to answer. But when you have an observer who has certain characteristics like computational boundedness, sequentiality of time, and so on, that observer only samples certain aspects of this incredible complexity going on in this multi-computational system. Mm -hmm. And that observer is sensitive only to some underlying core structure of this multi-computational system. There is all this irreducible computation going on, all these details, but to that kind of observer, what's important is only the the core structure of multi-computation, which means that observer observes comparatively simple laws and I think it is inevitable that that observer observes laws which are mathematically structured like general relativity and quantum mechanics, which, by the way, are the same law in our in our model of physics. So that's an explanation why there are simple laws that explain a lot for this observer. Potentially, yes. But what the, the place where this gets really interesting is there are all these fields of science where people have kind of gotten stuck, where they say, we'd really love to have a physics-like theory of economics. Mm-hmm. We'd really love to have a physics-like law and linguistics. You got to talk like about molecular biology here. 
Okay. So right. where 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 does multi-computation come in for biology? Economics is super interesting too, but biology. Okay, let's talk about that. So yes. let's talk about chemistry for a second. Okay. So I mean, I have to say, you know, this is it's such a weird business for me because you know they're these kind of paradigmatic ideas and then they're the actual applications. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I've always said, I, I know nothing about chemistry. I learned all the chemistry I know, you know, the night before some exam when I was 14 years old. But, yeah. but I've actually learned a bunch more chemistry. And in, in Wolfram language these days, we have really pretty nice symbolic representation of chemistry. Mm -hmm. And in understanding the design of that, I've actually, I think, learned a certain amount of chemistry. Though if you quizzed me on sort of basic high school chemistry, mm -hmm. I would probably totally fail. Mm -hmm. but, um, uh, but, but okay, so what is chemistry? I mean, Chemistry is sort of a story of, you know, chemical reactions are like you've got this particular chemical, it's represented as some graph of, you know, these are these are this configuration of molecules with these bonds and so on. And a chemical reaction happens, you've got these sort of two graphs, they interact in some way, you get another graph or multiple other graphs out. So that's kind of the 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 the, the sort of the the abstract view of what's happening in chemistry. Mm -hmm. And so when you do a chemical synthesis, for example, you are given certain sort of these are possible reactions that can happen. And you're asked, can you piece together this a sequence of such reactions, a sequence of such sort of axiomatic reactions, usually called name reactions in chemistry? Can you piece together a sequence of these reactions so that you get out at the end this great molecule you were trying to synthesize? Mm -hmm. And so that's a story very much like theorem proving. And people have done, uh, actually, they started in the 1960s looking at, at kind of the theorem proving approach to that, although it didn't really, it didn't, it didn't, uh, was sort of done too early, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, so that's kind of the view is that, that chemistry, chemical reactions are this story of, of all these different sort of paths of possible things that go on. Okay. Let's, let's go to an even lower level. Let's say instead of asking about, uh, which species of molecules we're talking about. Let's look at individual molecules. And let's say we're looking at individual molecules and they are having chemical reactions and we're building up this big graph of all these reactions that are happening. Okay, so, so then we've got this big graph. And by the way, that big graph is incredibly similar to these hypergraph rewriting things. Um, in fact, in the underlying theory of multi-computation, there are these things we call token event graphs, which are basically you've broken your state into tokens. Like in the case of a hypergraph, you've broken it into hyperedges, and each event is just consuming some number of tokens and producing some number of tokens. Yeah, but then you have to, there's a lot of work to be done on the update rules. Uh, in terms of what they actually are for chemistry? Yeah, what they are for our observed chemistry. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. We've been working on that, actually, because we have this beautiful system in, in Wolfram language for representing chemistry symbolically. So we actually have, you know, this is, a, this is an ongoing thing to actually figure out what they are for some practical cases. Does that but, require human injection or can it be automatically discovered, these update rules? Well, if we can could do quantum chemistry better, we could probably discover them automatically. But I think in, in, in reality right now, it's like there are these particular reactions. And, sure. and really, to understand what's going on, we're probably going to pick a particular subtype of chemistry. And just because, because let me explain where this is going. The, sure. the, the place that here's, here's where this is going. So got this whole network of all these molecules having all these reactions and so on. And this is some whole multi-computational story because each, each uh, sort of chemical reaction event is its own separate event. We're, we're saying they all happen asynchronously. We're not describing in what order they happen. You know, maybe that order is governed by some quantum mechanics thing. Doesn't really matter. We're just saying they happen in some order. Mm -hmm. And then we ask, what is the what? What's the you know? How do we think about the system? Well, 
this thing is some kind of big multi-computational system. The question is, what is the chemical observer? And one possible chemical observer is, all you care about is, did you make that particular drug molecule? You're just asking you know, the, for the one path. Another thing you might care about is, I want to know the concentration of each species. Mm -hmm. right? I want to know, you know, at every stage, I'm going to solve the differential equations that represent the concentrations, and I want to know what those all are. Mm -hmm. But there's more, because when, and it's kind of like you're going below in statistical mechanics, there's kind of all these molecules bouncing around, and you might say, uh, we're just going to ignore, we're just going to look at the aggregate uh, densities of certain kinds of molecules, but you can look at a lower level. You can look at this whole graph of possible interactions. And so the kind of the idea would be what, you know, is the only chemical observer one who just cares about overall concentrations? Mm -hmm. Or can there be a chemical observer who cares about this network of what happened? And so that the, the question then is, so, so let me give an analogy. So this is where I think this is potentially very relevant to molecular, molecular biology and molecular computing. Uh, when we think about a computation, usually we say it's input, it's output. We, we, you know, or chemistry, we say there's this input, we're going to make this molecule as the output. But what if what we actually encode, what if our computation, whatever the thing we care about is some part of this dynamic network? Mm -hmm. What if it isn't just the input and the output that we care about? What if there's some dynamics of the network that we care about? Now, imagine you're a chemical observer. What is a chemical observer? Well, in molecular biology, there are all kinds of weird sorts of observers. There are membranes that exist that have you know, different kinds of molecules that can bind to them, things like this. It's not obvious that the from a human scale, we just measure the concentration of something, mm -hmm. is the relevant story. We can imagine that, for example, when we look at this whole network of possible reactions, we can imagine you know, at a physical level, we can imagine, well, what was the actual momentum direction of that, of that molecule? What was it, which we don't pay any attention to when we're just talking about chemical concentrations. What was the orientation of that molecule? These kinds of things. And so here's the, here's the place where I'm, I have a little suspicion. Okay? So one of the questions in biology is what matters in biology? And that is, you know, we have all these chemical reactions, we have all these, all these molecular processes going on in, in, you know, in biological systems, what matters? And you know, one of the things is to be able to tell what matters, well, so a big story of the what matters question was what happened in genetics in 1953 when DNA, when it was figured out how DNA worked. Because before that time, you know, genetics had been all these different effects and complicated things. And then it was realized, ah, there's something new. A molecule can store information, which wasn't mm -hmm. obvious before that time. A single molecule can store information. So there's a place where there can be something important that's happening in molecular biology, and it's just in the sequence that's storing information in a molecule. Mm -hmm. So the possibility now is, imagine this dynamic network this uh, you know causal graphs and multi-way causal graphs and so on that represent all of these different reactions between molecules. What if there is some aspect of that that is storing information that's relevant for molecular mm -hmm. biology? In the dynamic aspect of that. Yes, that's right. So that it, it's similar to how the structure of a DNA molecule stores information. It could be the dynamics of the system somehow yes. stores information. And this kind of process might allow you to give uh, predictions of what that would be. Well, yes, but, but also imagine that you're trying to do, uh, for example, imagine you're trying to do molecular computation. Okay, You might think the way we're going to do molecular computation is we're just going to run the thing. We're going to see what came out. We're going to see what molecule came out. This is saying that's not the only thing you can do. 
there is a different kind of chemical observer that you can imagine constructing, which is somehow sensitive to this dynamic network. Mm -hmm. Exactly how that works, how we make that measurement, I don't know, but I have a few ideas, but, but um, that that's what's important, so to speak. And that that means, and by the way, you can do the same thing even for Turing machines. You can say, if you have a multi-way Turing machine, you can say, how do you compute with a multi-way Turing machine? You, ca you can't say, well, we've got this input and this output because the thing has all these threads of time and it's got lots of outputs. Mm -hmm. And so then you say, well, what does it even mean to be a universal multi-way Turing machine? I don't fully know the answer to that. But it it's has an interesting idea. It would freak Turing out for sure because then uh, the dynamics of the, the, the trajectory of the computation matters. Yes, yes. I mean, and, but, but the thing is that that, so this is again a story of what's the observer, so to speak. In mm -hmm. chemistry, what's, what's the observer there? Now, to give an example of, of where that might matter, a very uh, sort of uh, present day example is in immunology, um, where you know, we have whatever it is, you know, 10 billion different kinds of antibodies that are, you know, all these different shapes and so on. We have, I may, a trillion different kinds of T cell receptors that we can, that we produce. And, you know, the, the traditional theory of immunology is this clonal selection theory where we are constantly producing, randomly producing all these different antibodies. And as soon as one of them binds to an antigen, then that one gets amplified and we produce more of that antibody and so on. Mm -hmm. um, Back in the 1960s, um, an immunologist called Nils Jerner, who was the guy who invented monoclonal antibodies, various other things, um, kind of had this network theory of the immune system where it would be like, well, we produce antibodies, but then we produce antibodies to the antibodies, anti-antibodies, and we produce anti-anti-antibodies. And we get this whole dynamic network of interactions between different immune system cells. And that was, that, that was kind of a qualitative theory at that time and it's, I've been a little disappointed because I've been studying immunology a bit recently. And I, I knew something about this like 35 years ago or something. And I knew, you know, I'd read a bunch of the books and I'd talked to a bunch of the people and so on. And it was like a, a, an emerging theoretical immunology world. Mm -hmm. and, and then I look at the books now and they're very thick because they've got, you know, there's just a ton known about immunology and, you know, all these different pathways, all these different details and so on. But the theoretical sections seem to have shrunk. Um, and so it's um, so. The question is, what you know? For example, immune memory. Where is the where does the immune memory reside? Is it actually some cell sitting in our bone marrow that is you know living for the whole of our lives that's going to spring into action as soon as we're shown the same antigen, or is it something different from that? Is it something more dynamic? Is it something more like some network of interactions between these different kinds of immune system cells and so on? And it's known that there are plenty of interactions between T cells and, you know, there's plenty of dynamics. Mm -hmm. But what the consequence of that dynamics is, is not clear. And to have a qualitative theory for that doesn't, it doesn't seem to exist. In fact, I was just, just been trying to study this, so I'm quite incomplete in my study of these things, but I was a little bit taken aback because I've, I've, I've been looking at these things and it's like, and then they get to the end where they have the most advanced theory that they've got, and it turns out it's a cellular automaton theory. Um, <laughs> it's like, uh, okay, well, at least I understand that theory. Yeah. Um, but but uh, you know, I think that the possibility is that in... Um, uh, this is a place where if you want to know, you know, explain roughly how the immune system works, it ends up being this sort of dynamic network. And then the, the, you know, the immune consciousness, so to speak, the observer 
ends up being something that you know in the end it's kind of like does the human get sick or whatever mm -hmm. but it's a it's something which is a complicated story that relates to this whole sort of dynamic network and so on and i think that's another place where this kind of notion of uh, where where i think multi computation has the possibility see one of the things okay you can end up with something where yes there is a general relativity in there mm -hmm. there but it turns out but it may turn out that the observer who sees general relativity in the immune system is an observer that's irrelevant to what we care about about the immune system. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be, yes, there is some effect where, you know, there's some, you know, time dilation of T cells interacting with whatever, but it's like, that's an effect that's just irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And the thing we actually care about is things about, you know, what happens when you have a vaccine that goes into some place in shape space and you know how does that affect other places in shape space and how does that spread you know what's the what's the analog of the speed of light in shape space for example that's mm -hmm. an that's an important issue if you have one of these dynamic theories it's like you you know you you poke into shape space by having you know let's say a vaccine or something that has a particular configuration in shape space how how quickly as this dynamic network spreads out how quickly do you get sort of other antibodies uh, in different places in shape space, things like that. When you say shape space, you mean the shape of the molecules? Or yes. the, the, and then, so this is like, uh, could be deeply connected to the protein and multi-protein folding, all of that kind of stuff. Yes. So, so yeah. be able to say something interesting about the, the dance of proteins. That right, exactly. That's then actually right. has an impact on um, helping develop drugs, for example, or has an impact on Virology, immunology, helping. To well, I think the, the the big thing is, you know, when we think about molecular biology, the um, uh, you know, what what is the qualitative way to think about it? You know, in other words, is it chemical reaction networks? Right. Is it you know genetics? You know, DNA. Big, you know, big news. It's kind of there's a digital aspect to the whole thing. You know, what is the qualitative way to think about how things work in biology? Um, you know, when we think about, I don't know, some phenomenon like aging or something, which is a big complicated phenomenon, which just seems to have all these different tentacles. Is it really the case that that can be thought about in some, you know, without DNA, when people were describing, you know, genetic phenomena, there were, you know, dominant, recessive, this, that, and the other, it got very, very complicated. And then people realized, oh, it's just you know, and, and what is a gene and so on and so on and so on. And then people realize it's just base pairs and there's this digital representation. And so the question is, what is the overarching representation that we can now start to think about using in molecular biology? I don't know how this will work out. And this is, again, one of these things where, and, and, and the place where that gets important is, you know, maybe molecular biology is doing molecular computing by using some dynamic process that is something where it is very happily saying, oh, I just got a result. It's in the dynamic structure of this network. Now I'm going to go and do some other thing based on that result, for example. But we're like, oh, I don't know what's going on. You know, it's just, we just measured the levels of these chemicals and we couldn't conclude anything. Mm -hmm. But it just, we're looking at the wrong thing. And, and so that's the, that's kind of the, 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 the potential there. And it's, it's, um, I mean, these things are, I don't know, it's, it's for me, it's, it's like I've not really, that was not a, a view. I mean, I've thought about molecular computing for ages and ages and ages. And I've always imagined that the big story is kind of the, the original promise of nanotechnology of like, can we make a molecular scale constructor that will just build, build a molecule in any shape? Mm -hmm. But I don't think I, I'm now increasingly concluding that's not the big point. The big point is something more dynamic. That will be an interesting endpoint for any of these things, but that's perhaps not 
the thing, you know, because the one example we have in molecular computing that's really working is us biological organisms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe the thing that's important there is not uh, this, you know, what chemicals do you make, so to speak, but more this kind of dynamic process. The dynamic process, and then you can have a good model like the hypograph to, to then explore, exp what, like s simulate again, make predictions, and if they- I think just are, have a way to reason about biology. I mean, it's it's hard, you know, but first of all, biology doesn't have theories like physics. You know, physics is a much more successful sort of global theory kind of, kind of area. You know, biology, what are the global theories of biology? Pretty much Darwinian evolution. That's the only global theory of biology. You know, other, any other theory is just a, well, the kidneys work this way, the, this thing works this way, and so on. There isn't, uh, I suppose, another global theory is digital information in DNA. That's another sort of global fact about biology. Well, but the, the, the difficult thing to do is to match something you uh, have a model of in the hypergraph to the actual, like, how do you discover the theory? How do you how do you discover the theory? Okay, you have something that looks nice and makes sense, but like you have to match it to validation and experiment. Oh sure, right. And that's tricky because you're walking around in the dark. Not entirely. I mean, so so you know, for example, in what we've been trying to think about is take actual chemical reactions. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you know, one of my one of my goals is can I compute the primes with molecules? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's if I can do that, then I kind of. Maybe I can compute things. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's this nice automated lab these guys, these Emerald Cloud Lab people have built with Wolfram Language and so on. That's mm -hmm. an actual physical lab, and you send it a piece of Wolfram Language code and it goes and, you know, actually does physical experiments. And so one of my one of my goals, because I'm not a test tube kind of guy, I'm more of a software kind of person, mm -hmm. is can I make something where, you know, in this automated lab, we can actually get it so that there's some gel that we made and, you know, the positions of the stripes are These the, are the primes. primes. I love it. Yeah. The, I mean, that okay. would be that would be an example of, of of where, and that would be with a particular, uh, you know, framework for actually doing the molecular computing, uh, you know, with particular kinds of molecules. And, and there's a lot of kind of ambient technological mess, so to speak, associated with, oh, is it carbon? Is it this? Is it that? You know, is it important that there's a bromine atom here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is all chemistry that I don't know much about. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's that's a, a sort of, you know, unfortunately, that's down at the level, you know, I, I would like to be at the software level, not at the level of the transistors, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But in chemistry, you know, there's a certain amount we have to do, I think, at the level of transistors before we get up to being able to do it. Although, you know, automated labs certainly help in, in, in setting that up. I talked to uh, a guy named Charles Hoskinson. He mentioned that he's collaborating with you. He's an interesting guy. He sends me papers on uh, speaking of automated theorem proving a lot. He's exceptionally well-read on that area as well. So what's the nature of your collaboration with him? He's the creator of Cardano. What's the nature of the collaboration between Cardano and the whole space of blockchain and Wolfram, Wolfram Alpha, Wolfram Blockchain, all that kind of stuff? Well, okay, we're, we're segueing to a, we a slightly different world, but, but um, so, uh, although not completely unconnected, right? They, the they, whole thing is somehow connected. I, I know. I mean, the, the the you know the strange thing in my life is I've sort of alternated between doing basic science and doing technology mm -hmm. about five times in my life so far. And the thing that's just crazy about it is, you know, every time I do one of these alternations, I think there's not going to be a way back to the other thing. Mm -hmm. And like I thought for this physics project, I thought you know we're doing fundamental theory of physics. Maybe it'll have an application in two hundred years. Um, but now I've realized 
um, actually, this multi-computation idea is is applicable here and now. It's and in fact, it's also giving us this way. Uh, I'll just mention one other thing, and then then we'll talk about blockchain. Um, the um, the question of um, uh, actually that relates to several different things, but but um, one of the things about about okay, so our Wolfram language, which is our attempt to kind of represent everything in the world computationally. And it's the thing I kind of started building 40 years ago in the form of actual Wolfram language uh, 35 years ago. Um, it's kind of this idea of can we, can we express things about the world in computational terms? And you know we've come a long way in being able to do that. Wolfram Alpha is kind of the consumer version of that where you're just using natural language as input, the, um, and it turns it into our symbolic language and that's you know the symbolic language Wolfram language is what people use and have been using for the last 33 years actually Mathematica which is its first instantiation will be one third of a century old in uh, in October um, and um, that uh, wow. uh, it's it's kind of interesting what do you mean one third of a century does that mean 33 or 30 what are we 33 and a third 33 and a third um, so. Uh, <laughs> But, but I've never heard of anyone celebrating that anniversary, but I like I, it. I know a third of a century, though it's it's like yeah. you don't get many many slices of a century that are yeah. interesting. Yeah. But but you know I think that the the thing that's really striking about that is that means um, you know including the whole sort of technology stack I built around that's about forty years old, and that means it's a significant fraction of the total age of the computer industry. Mm -hmm. um, and it's I mean I think it's cool that we can still run you know Mathematica version one programs today and so on and and we've sort of maintained compatibility and we've been just building this big tower all those years of just more and more and more computational capabilities it's mm -hmm. sort of interesting we just made this this picture um of kind of the different kind of threads of 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 computational content of you know mathematical content and and you know uh, all sorts of things with you know data and graphs and whatever else and what you see in this picture is about the first 10 years it's kind of like it's just a few threads mm -hmm. and then then about hmm, maybe 15 20 years ago it kind of explodes in this whole collection of different threads of of all these different capabilities that are now part of Wolfram language and representing different things in the world but the thing that was super lucky in some sense is it's all based on one idea it's all based on the idea of symbolic expressions and transformation rules for symbolic expressions, mm -hmm. which was kind of what I originally put into this SMP system back in 1979 that was a predecessor of the whole Wolfram language stack. So that idea was an idea that I got from sort of trying to understand mathematical logic and so on. And it was my attempt to kind of make a general human comprehensible model of computation mm -hmm. of just everything is a symbolic expression and all you do is transform symbolic expressions. And, you know, in, in retrospect, I was very lucky that I understood as little as I understood then, because had I understood more, I would have been completely freaked out about all the different ways that that kind of model can, can fail. Because what do you do when you have a, 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 a symbolic expression, you make transformations for symbolic expressions? Mm -hmm. Well, for example, one question is there may be many transformations that could be made mm -hmm. in a very multi-computational kind of way. But what we're doing is picking, we're using the first transformation that applies. Mm -hmm. And we keep doing that until we reach a fixed point. And that's the result. And that's kind of a very, uh, it's kind of a, a way of, of, of sort of sliding around the edge of multi-computation. Mm -hmm. And back when I was working on SMP and things, I actually thought about these questions about, about how you know, how, what determines the, this kind of evaluation path. So for example, you know, you work out Fibonacci, 
you know, Fibonacci is a recursive thing, f of n is f of n minus one plus f of n minus two, and you get this whole tree of recursion, right? And there's the question of how do you evaluate that tree of recursion? Do you do it sort of depth first where you go all the way down one side? Do you do it breadth first where you're kind of collecting the terms together where you know that you know f of eight plus f of seven, f of seven plus f of six, you can collect the f of sevens and so on. These are, um, you know, I didn't realize it at the time. It's kind of funny. I was working on, on gauge field theories back in 1979 and I was also working on the evaluation model um, in SMP, and they're the same problem. But it took me 40 more years to realize that. And this question about how you do this sort of evaluation front, that's a question of reference frames. It's a question of of kind of the um, the story of, of I mean, that that's, that is basically this question of in what order is the universe evaluated? Mm -hmm. And that, um, and so what you realize is there's this whole sort of world of different kinds of computation that you can do sort of multi-computationally, and that's a that's an interesting thing. It has a lot of implications for distributed computing and so on. Uh, it also has a potential implication for blockchain, which we haven't fully worked out, which is, um, and this is not what we're doing with Cardano, but but this is a, is a different thing. Mm -hmm. um, the um, This is something where uh, one of the questions is um, when you have, in a sense, blockchain is a deeply sequentialized story of time mm -hmm. because in blockchain, there's just one copy of the of the ledger and you're saying, this is what happened. You know, time is progressed in this way. And there are little things around the edge as, as you try and reach consensus and so on. And, and uh, you know, actually, we just recently, we've had this little conference we organized about the, the theory of distributed consensus, because I realized that there are a bunch of interesting things that some of our science can tell one about that. But that's a different, let's, let's not go down that, that path. Yeah, yeah, but distributed consensus, that still has a sequential. There's like There's one still ledger. sequentiality. So, so distributed don't, consensus don't tell me you're a, thinking through like how to apply multi-computation to uh, blockchain. Yeah. Yes, and so so that becomes a story of, you know, instead of transactions all having to settle in one ledger, mm -hmm. it's like a story of all these different ledgers and they all have to have some ultimate consistency, which is what causal invariance would give one, but it can take a while. And the it can take a while is kind of like quantum mechanics. So it's kind of what's happening is there are these different paths of history that correspond to, you know, in one path of history, you got paid this amount. In another path of history, you got paid this amount. Mm -hmm. In the end, the universe will always become consistent. Now, now the way it, it, will, it works is, okay, it's a little bit more complicated than that. What happens is the way space is knitted together in our theory of physics is through all these events. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the idea is that the way that economic space is knitted together is... Is, is there these autonomous events that essentially knit together economic space? Mm -hmm. So there are all these threads of transactions that are happening. And the question is, can they be made consistent? Are there, is there something forcing them to be sort of a consistent fabric of, of economic reality? And sort of what this has led me to is trying to realize how does economics fundamentally work? And, you know, what is economics? And, uh, you know, what, what are the atoms of economics, right. so to speak? And so what I've kind of realized is that that sort of the, uh, perhaps, I don't even know if this is right yet, there's sort of events in economics are transactions, there are states of agents that are kind of the atoms of economics, mm -hmm. and then transactions are kind of agents transact in some, uh, transact in some way, and that's an event. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, how do you knit together sort of economic space from that? What is there in economic space? Well, all these transactions, there's a whole complicated collection of possible transactions. But one thing that's true about economics is we tend to have 
the notion of a definite value for things. Mm -hmm. We could imagine that you know you buy a um, a cookie from somebody and they want to get a movie ticket, and there is some way that AI bots could make some path from the cookie to the movie ticket by all these different trans intermediate transactions. But in fact, we have an approximation to that, which is we say they each have a dollar value, and we have this kind of numeraire concept of there's just a way of kind of, of, of taking this whole complicated space of transactions and parsing it in something which is a kind of a simplified thing that is kind of like our parsing of physical space. And so my my guess is that the, uh, yet again, I mean, it's crazy that all these things are so connected. This is another multi-computation story, another story of where what's happening is that the economic consciousness, the economic observer is not going to deal with all of those different microscopic transactions. They're just going to parse the whole thing by saying, there's this value, it's a number. Mm -hmm. And that's that's their understanding of their summary of this economic network. And there will be all kinds of things, like there are all kinds of arbitrage opportunities, which are kind of like the quantum effects in this whole thing. And um, that's, uh, you know, and, and places where there's where there's sort of different paths that can be followed and, and so on. And, and there's, so... The question is, can one make a sort of global theory of economics? And then my test case is, again, what is time dilation in economics? And, and I know for, you know, if you, if you imagine a very agricultural economics where people are growing lettuces in fields and things like this, mm -hmm. and you ask questions about, well, if you're transporting lettuces to different places, you know, what is the value of the lettuces after you have to transport them versus if you're just sitting in one place and selling them? Mm -hmm. And you can kind of get a little bit of an analogy there. But I think there's a, there's a better and more complete analogy. And that, that's the question of, is there a theory like general relativity that is a global theory of economics and is it about something we care about? Mm -hmm. It could be that there is a global theory, but it's about a feature of economic reality that isn't important to us. Now, another part of the story is, can one use those ideas to make essentially a distributed blockchain, a, a distributed generalization of blockchain, kind of the quantum analog of money, so to speak, where, where you have, for example, you can have uncertainty relations where you're saying, you know, well, if I, if I insist on knowing my bank account right now, there'll be some uncertainty. If I'm prepared to wait a while, then it'll be much more certain. Um, and so there's, you know, is there a way of using, and, and so we've, we've made a bunch of prototypes of this, mm -hmm. um, which I'm not yet happy with, because what I realized is to really understand these prototypes, I actually have to have a foundational theory of economics. And so that's kind of a, uh, you know, it may be that we could deploy a pro one of these prototypes as a practical system, mm -hmm. but I think it's really going to be much better if we actually have an understanding of how this plugs into kind of the economic and system. And that means like a fundamental theory of transactions between entities. Well, and, that's, and, and that's how, what you mean by economics. Yes, I think so. But I mean, you know, how how there emerge sort of laws of economics. I don't even know. And I, I've been asking friends of mine who are who are economists and things. What is economics? You know, is it yeah. an axiomatic theory? Is it a theory that is a kind of a, a qualitative description theory? Is it you know what kind of a theory is it? Is it a theory? You know, what kind of thinking? It's like. Like in, in biology, in evolutionary biology, for example, there's a certain there's a certain pattern of thinking that goes on in evolutionary biology where if you're a you know a, a good evolutionary biologist, somebody says that creature has a weird horn, mm -hmm. and they'll say, Well, that's because this and this and this, and there's selection of this kind and that kind, and that's the story. And it's not a mathematical story, it's a story of a different type of thinking about these things. By the way, 
uh, evolution of biology is yet another place where it looks like this multi-computational idea can be applied. And that's uh, where, where maybe speciation is related to things like event horizons, and there's a whole, whole other kind of world of that. But, but it, so it seems like this kind of model can be applicable in so many aspects, like uh, the different levels of understanding of uh, our reality. So it could I be the so. biology, at the chemistry, at the physics level, right. the economics, and you could potentially, so, the thing is, it's like, okay, sure, at all these levels it might rhyme, it might make sense as a model. The question is, can you make useful predictions as that's one right. of these levels? And that, that's, that's right, and, that, and that's, that's really a question of, you know, it's a weird situation because it's a situation where the model probably has definite consequences. The question is, are they consequences we care about? Yeah, and and that's some, uh, you know, and so, so in, in the case of in the economic case, the um, uh, where, um, so you know, the one one thing is this this idea of using kind of physics like notions to construct a kind of distributed analog of blockchain. Okay, the much more pragmatic thing is a, is a different direction, and it has to do with this computational language that we built to describe the world. That knows about you know different kinds of cookies and knows about different cities and knows about how to compute all these kinds of things. One of the things that is of interest is if you want to run the world, you need you know with 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 contracts and laws and rules and so mm -hmm. on. There are rules at a human level, and there are kind of um, things like uh, and so this this gets one into the idea of computational contracts. Mm -hmm. You know, right now when we write a contract, it's a piece of legalese. It's you know, it's just written in English, and it's not something that's automatically analyzable, executable, whatever else. It's just English. You know, back in uh, Gottfried Leibniz, back in you know 1680 or whatever, was like um, I'm going to you know figure out how to use logic to decide legal cases and so on. And he had kind of this idea of, let's make a computational language for the human, the human law. Um, forget about modeling nature, forgot about natural laws. What about human law? Can we make kind of a computational representation of that? Well, I think finally we're close to being able to do that. And one of the projects that I hope to get to, as soon as the there's a little bit of slowing down of some of this Cambrian explosion that's happening as a project I've been meaning to really do for a long time, which is what I'm calling a symbolic discourse language. It's this just finishing the job of being able to represent everything like the conversation we're having mm -hmm. in computational terms. And one of the use cases for that is computational contracts. Another use case is something like the the constitution that says what the AIs, what we want the AIs to do. So, but this is useful. So you're saying, uh, so these are like, you're saying computational contracts, but smart contracts. This is what's in the domain of cryptocurrencies known as smart contracts. And so the the language you've developed is symbolic or seek to further develop symbolic discourse language enables you to- uh, Write a contract. And write, so, so, write so a the, contract that richly represents the world. So, some aspect right. of the world, yeah. But, but so, so, I mean, smart contracts tend to be right now mostly about things happening on the blockchain. Yes. And sometimes they have oracles, and in fact, our Wolfram Alpha API is the, is the main thing people use to get information about the real world, so to speak, yeah. within smart contracts. So Wolfram Alpha, as it stands, is a really good oracle for yes. whoever wants to use it. That's perhaps where the relationship with Cardano is. Yeah, well, that's how, how we started getting involved with yes. blockchains, is we realized people were using you know, Wolfram Alpha as the oracle for smart contracts, so to yes. speak. And so that got us interested in blockchains in general. 
And what was ended up happening is Wolfram language is with its symbolic representation of things is really very good at representing things like blockchains. And so I think we now have, I mean, we don't really know all the comparisons, but we now have a really nice environment within Wolfram language for dealing with the sort of, uh, you know, for representing what happens in blockchains, for analyzing what happens in blockchains. We have a whole effort in blockchain analytics. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, we've sort of published some samples of how that works. But, but it's, you know, because our technology stack, Wolfram Language and Mathematica, are very widely used in the quant finance world. There's a there's a, a sort of immediate uh, sort of um, uh, co-evolution there of of sort of the quant finance kind of thing and blockchain analytics, and that's um, so so it's kind of the representation of blockchain in computational language. Then ultimately, it's kind of like how do you run the world with code? That is, how do you write? sort of all these things which are right now regulations and laws and contracts and things in computational language. And kind of the the ultimate vision is that sort of something happens in the world and then there's this giant domino effect of all these computational contracts that trigger based on the thing that happened. And there's a there's a whole story to, to that. And of course, you know, I, I like to always pay attention to the latest things that are going on. And I, I really I kind of like blockchain because it's a it's a it's another rethinking of kind of computation. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, you know, cloud computing was a little bit of that of sort of persistent um kind of uh computational resources and so on. And uh, you know, this multi-computation is a big rethinking of kind of what it means to compute. Mm-hmm. Blockchain is another bit of rethinking of what it means to compute. The idea that you lodge kind of these autonomous lumps of computation out there in the blockchain world. And and one of the things that um just sort of uh, for fun, so to speak, as we've been doing a bit of stuff with NFTs, and we just did some NFTs on Cardano, and we'll be doing some more. And uh, you know, we did some cellular automaton NFTs on Cardano, of which people seem nice. to like to yeah. like quite a bit. Um, and uh, you know, one of the things I've realized about about NFTs is that there's kind of this notion, and, and we're we're really working on this. You know, I like recording stuff. You know, I, one of the things that's come out of of kind of my science, I suppose, is this this history matters type type story mm-hmm. of, you know, it's not just the current state, it's the history that matters. And I've kind of, I don't think this is uh, actually realizing, maybe it's not coincidental that I'm sort of the human who's recorded more about themselves than anybody else. And then I end up with these science results mm-hmm. that say history matters, which was not those those things. I didn't think those were connected, but-, uh, but They're uh, at least correlated, yes. Yeah, right. So, you know, this question about sort of recording what has happened and and having sort of a permanent record of things. One of the things that's kind of interesting there is, you know, you put up a website and it's got a bunch of stuff on it, but, you know, you have to keep paying the hosting fees or the thing's going to go away. Mm-hmm. But one of the things about blockchain is quite interesting is if you put something on a blockchain and you pay, you know, your commission to get that thing, you know, put on, you know, mined, put on the block, blockchain, then then in a sense, everybody who comes after you is you know, they are motivated to keep your thing alive because mm-hmm. that's what keeps the consistency of the blockchain. So in a sense, with sort of the NFT world, it's kind of like if you want to have something permanent, well, at least for the life of the blockchain, but but even if the blockchain goes out of circulation, so to speak, there's going to be enough value in that whole collection of transactions mm-hmm. that people are going to archive the thing. Mm-hmm. But that means that, you know, pay once and you're kind of, you're lodged in the blockchain forever. And so we've been kind of playing around with um, a sort of a, a hobby thing of, of mine of, of thinking about sort of the NFTs and how you um, and sort of the consumer idea of kind of the it's the it's the anti, you know, it's the opposite of the Snapchat 
view of the world. Right. So There's a the permanence to it that's heavily incentivized, and uh, thereby you can have a permanence of history. Right, and that's 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 kind of the um, now you know so that's so that's one of the things we've been doing with Cardano, and it's, it's kind of fun. I think that that um, I mean this whole question about you know you mentioned automated theorem proving and um, blockchains and so on, and as I've thought about this kind of physics inspired distributed blockchain, obviously there the sort of the proof that it works that there are no double spends, there's no whatever else. That proof becomes a very formal kind of almost a matter of physics, so to speak. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, it's been it's been an interesting thing for the for the practical blockchains to do kind of actual automated theorem proving. And I don't think anybody's really managed it in an interesting case yet. Mm -hmm. It's a thing that people you know aspire to, but I think it's a challenging thing because basically the point is one of the one of the things about proving correctness of something is well, you know, people say I've got this program and I'm going to prove it's correct. It's like, what does that mean? You have to say what correct means. I mean, it's it's kind of like then you have to have another language, and, and people were very confused back in past decades of you know, oh, we're going to prove the correctness by representing the program in another language, which we also don't know whether it's correct. Mm -hmm. And you know, often by correctness we just mean it can't crash or it it can't scribble on memory. But but the thing is that there's this complicated trade-off because as soon as there's as soon as you're really using computation, you have computational irreducibility, you have undecidability. If you want to use computation seriously, you have to kind of let go of the idea that you're going to be able to box it in and say, we're going to have just this happen and not anything else. I mean, this is, a, this is an old fact. I mean, Gödel's theorem tries to say, you know, piano arithmetic, the axioms of arithmetic, can you box in the integers and say these axioms give just the integers and nothing about the integers? Gödel's theorem showed that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. There's a, you know, you can have all these wild, weird things that are, obey the piano axioms but aren't integers. And there's this kind of infinite hierarchy of additional axioms you would have to add. And it's kind of the same thing. You, you don't get to, you know, if you want to say, I want to know what happens, you're boxing yourself in and there's a limit to what can happen, so to speak. So it's a it's a complicated trade-off, and it's a it's a it's a big trade-off for AI, so to speak. It's kind of like, do you want to let computation actually do what it can do, or do you want to say, no, it's very very boxed in to the point where we can understand every step, and that's a that's kind of a thing that that um, that becomes difficult to do. But that that's some. Um, I mean, in in general, I would say one of the things that's kind of complicated in my uh, sort of life and the whole sort of story of computational language and, and all this technology and science and so on. I mean, I, I kind of, in, in the flow of one's life, it's sort of interesting to see how these things play out because I, you know, I, I've kind of concluded that I'm in the business of making kind of artifacts from the future, which means, you know, there are things that I've done. I don't know, this physics project, I don't know whether anybody would have gotten to it for 50 years. You know, the fact that Mathematica is a third of a century old, and I know that a bunch of the core ideas are not well absorbed. I mean, that is, people finally got this idea that I thought was a triviality of notebooks. That was 25 years. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, some of these core ideas about symbolic computation and so on are not, are not absorbed. I mean, people, people use them every day in Wolfram language and, you know, do all kinds of cool things with them. But if you say, what is the fundamental intellectual point here? It's it's not well absorbed, and it's it's something where you kind of realize that you're you're sort of building things. And I I kind of made this this thing about you know we're building artifacts from the future, so to speak. And I mentioned that at our uh, we have a, a a conference every it's coming up actually in a couple of weeks, our annual technology conference, mm -hmm. uh, where we talk about all the all the things we're doing. 
Um, and, uh, you know, so I was, I was talking about it last year about, you know, we're making artifacts from the future. And I was kind of like, uh, I had some, some version of that that was kind of a dark and frustrated thing of like, mm. you know, I'm building things which nobody's going to care about until long after I'm dead, so to speak. But, um, but, but then I, I realized, you know, people were, were sort of telling me afterwards, you know, that's exactly how, you know, we're using Wolfram language in some particular setting in, you know, some computational X field or some organization or whatever. And it's like people are saying, oh, you know, what did you manage to do? You know, well, we know that in principle it will be possible to do that, but we didn't know that was possible now. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like that's the that's sort of the business we're in. And in a sense, with some of these ideas in science, um, you know, I feel a little bit the same way that there are some of these things where, you know, some some things like, for example, this whole idea, well, so so to, to to relate to another sort of piece of history on the future, one of you know, I mentioned, we mentioned at the beginning kind of complexity as this thing that I was interested in back 40 years ago and so on. Where does complexity come from? Well, I think we kind of nailed that. The answer is in the computational universe, even simple programs make it. And that's kind of the secret that nature has that allows you to make it. Mm -hmm. So so that's kind of the um uh that that's that part. But the bigger picture there was this idea of this kind of computational paradigm, the idea that you could go beyond mathematical equations, which have been sort of the primary modeling medium for 300 years. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, look, it is inexorably the case that people will use programs rather than just equations. And you know, I was saying that in the 1980s, and people were, you know, I published my big book, New Kind of Science, that'll be 20 years ago uh, next year, so in 2002. And people are saying, oh, no, this can't possibly be true. You know, we know for 300 years we've been doing all this stuff, right? To be fair, I now realize on a little bit more analysis of what people actually said in pretty much every field other than physics, people said, oh, these are new models. That's pretty interesting. In physics, people were like, we've got our physics models. We're very happy with them. Yeah, but, in physics, there's more resistance because of the attachment and the power of the equations. Right. The idea that programs might be the right way to approach right. uh, this field uh, was, uh, there's some resistance, and like you're saying, it takes time. For somebody who likes the idea of time dilation and all these applications, I thought you would understand this. Yeah, right, but, but, but you know, I, and, and computational irreducibility. Yes, well. but, exactly. But, but, but I mean, it is really interesting that just 20 years, a span of 20 years, it's gone from, you know, pitchforks and horror yeah. to, yeah, we get it. And, um, you know, it, it's helped that we've, you know, in our current effort in, in fundamental physics, we've gotten a lot further and we've managed to put a lot of puzzle pieces together that, that make sense. But the thing that I've been thinking about recently is this field of complexity. So I, I've kind of was a sort of a, a field builder Back in the 1980s, I was kind of like, okay, you know, can we, uh, you know, I, I'd understood this point that there was this sort of fundamental phenomenon of complexity and it showed up in lots of places. And I was like, this is an interesting sort of field of science. And I was uh, recently was reminded I was at this, the very first sort of get together of what became the Santa Fe Institute. Mm -hmm. And I was like, in fact, there's even an audio recording of me sort of saying, people have been talking about, oh, what should this you know, outfit do. And I was saying, well, there is this thing that I've been thinking about. It's this kind of idea of complexity. Nice. And um, uh, it's kind of like, uh, and that's that's what that ended up. And kind you of planted the seed of complexity at Santa Fe. That's yes. beautiful. That's a beautiful but, but, vision. But, 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 but I mean, so that, but what's happened then is this idea of complexity and, you know, can, you know, and I started the first research center at University of Illinois for doing that in the first journal, complex systems and so on. 
And uh, and it's kind of an interesting thing in, in my life, at least, that it's kind of like you plant this seed, you have this idea, it's a kind of a science idea, you have this idea of sort of focusing on the phenomenon of complexity. The deeper idea was this computational paradigm, mm -hmm. but the, the nominal idea is this kind of idea of complexity. Okay, then you roll time forward 30 years or whatever, 35 years, whatever it is, um, and you say, what happened? Okay, well, now there are a thousand complexity institutes around the world, um, I think, more or less. We've been trying to count them. Um, and, uh, you know, there are 40 complexity journals, I think. Um, and so it's kind of like what actually happened in this field, right? And, and I look at a lot of what happened, and I'm like, uh, you know, I have to admit to some eye rolling, so to speak, because it's kind of like, like what is, what, what's, what, what's actually going on? Well, what people definitely got was this idea of computational models. And then they got, but they thought, one of, the, one of the kind of cognitive mistakes, I think, is they say, we've got a computational model, and, it, uh, and we're looking at a system that's complex, and our computational model gives complexity. By golly, that must mean it's right. And unfortunately, because complexity is a generic phenomenon and computational irreducibility is a generic phenomenon that actually tells you nothing. And so then the question is, well, what can you do? You know, there's a, a lot of things that have been sort of done under this banner of complexity. And I think it's been very successful in providing sort of an interdisciplinary way of connecting different fields yeah, together. Which and, is and, powerful in itself. Right. I mean, that's a very useful and economics and yeah, it is. Right. And it's physics. a good organizing principle. But but in the end, a lot of that is around this kind of computational paradigm, computational modeling. That's the raw material that powers that kind of uh, that kind of correspondence, I think. And the question is sort of what is the, you know, I was just thinking recently, you know, we've been, I mean, the, the, the other, we've been, we've been, for years, people have told me, you should start some Wolfram Institute that does basic science. Mm -hmm. and, you know, all I have is a company that, that builds software and we, you know, we have a little piece that does basic science as kind of a hobby. Mm -hmm. People are saying, you should start this Wolfram Institute thing. And, and I've been, you know, because I've known about lots of institutes and I've seen kind of their flow of money and, and kind of, you know, what happens in different situations and so on. So I've been kind of reluctant, but, uh, but I've, I've, I have realized that, you know, what we've done with our company over the last 35 years, you know, we built a very good machine for doing R&D and, you know, innovating and creating things. And I just applied that machine to the physics project. Mm -hmm. That's how we did the physics project in a fairly short amount of time with a, you know, a efficient machine with you know, various people involved and so on. Um, and so, you know, it, it works for basic science. And it's like, we can do more of this. Mm -hmm. And so in now- biology and chemistry, so it, it's, it's become an institute. Yes, well, it needs to become an institute. An right. official institute. Right, right. But the, the thing that, so I was thinking about, okay, so what do we do with complexity? You know, what, what there are all these people who've, uh, you know, what, what should happen to that field? Yeah. And what I realized is there's kind of this area of foundations of complexity that's about these questions about simple programs, what they do, that's far away from a bunch of the detailed applications that people, well, it's not far away. It's, it's, the, it's the under, you know, the, the bedrock underneath those applications. And so I realized recently, this is my a recent kind of little uh, innovation of a sort, um, a post that I'll do very soon, mm -hmm. the, um, about um, uh, kind of, you know, the foundations of complexity, what really are they? I think they're really two ideas, two conceptual ideas that I hadn't really enunciated, I think, before. One is what I call metamodeling. The other is ruleology. Mm -hmm. So what is metamodeling? So metamodeling is you've got this complicated model, and it's a model of you know hedgehogs interacting with this, interacting with that. 
And the question is, what's really underneath that? What is it? You know, is it a Turing machine? Is it a cellular automaton? You know, what is the underlying stuff underneath that model? Mm -hmm. And so there's this kind of meta science question of given these models, what is the core model? And I realized, I mean, to me, that's sort of an obvious question. But then I realized I've been doing language design for 40 years, and language design is exactly that question. You know, underneath all of this detailed stuff people do, what are the underlying primitives? And that's a question people haven't tended to ask about models. They say, well, we've got this nice model for this and that and the other. What's really underneath it? And what, you know, because once you have the thing that's underneath it, well, for example, this multi-computation idea is an ultimate meta-modeling idea because it's saying underneath all these fields is one kind of paradigmatic structure. Yeah. And you know you can, you can imagine the same kind of thing in much more sort of, uh, much sort of shallower levels in, in, um, in, in different kinds of modeling. So there's, the first activity is this kind of meta-modeling, the, the kind of the, the models about models, so to speak. You know, what is the, what's, what's you know, drilling down into models? That's one thing. The other thing is this, this thing that I think we're going to call ruleology, which is kind of the, the, okay, you've got these simple rules. You've got cellular automata, you've got Turing machines, you've got substitution systems, you've got register machines, you've got all these different things. What do they actually do in the wild? And this is an area that I've spent a lot of time you know, working on. It's a lot of stuff in my new kind of science book is about this. Um, you know, this new book I wrote about combinators is, is full of stuff like this. And, and this journal, Complex Systems, is, has lots of papers about these kinds of things. But, but there isn't really a home for people who do ruleology or what it's I'm not. As you call the basic science of rules. Yes. Yes, right. So it's, it's like you've got some, what is it? Is it mathematics? No, it isn't really like mathematics. In fact, from my now understanding of metamathematics, I understand that it's the molecular dynamics level. Mm -hmm. It's not the level that mathematicians have traditionally cared about. It's not computer science. Because computer science is about writing programs that do things, you know, that were for a purpose, not programs in the wild, so to speak. It's not physics. It doesn't have anything to do with, you know, it may be underneath some physics, but it's not physics as such. So it just hasn't had a home. And if you look at, you know, but what's great about it is it's a surviving field, so to speak. It's, it's something where, you know, one of the things I, I find sort of inspiring about mathematics, for example, is you look at mathematics that was done, you know, in ancient Greece, ancient, you know, Babylon, Egypt, and so on. It's still here today. Mm -hmm. You know, you find an icosahedron that somebody made in ancient Egypt. You look at it, oh, that's a very modern thing. It's an icosahedron. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it's a timeless kind of, uh, kind of activity. And this idea of studying simple rules and what they do, it's a timeless activity. And I can see that over the last 40 years or so as, you know, even with cellular automata, it's kind of like, you know, you can sort of catalog what, what are the different cellular automata used for. And, you know, like the, the, the simplest rules, like, like one, you might even know this one, rule 184. It's um, rule 184 is a minimal model for road traffic flow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's also a minimal model for various other things. But it's kind of fun that you can literally say, you know, rule 90 is a minimal model for this and this and this. Rule four is a minimal model for this. And it's kind of remarkable that you can just by in this raw level of this kind of study of rules, they then branch, they're, they're the raw material that you can use to make models of different things. So it's a, it's a very pure basic science, but it's one that, you know, people have explored it, but they've been kind of a little bit in the wilderness. And I think, you know, one of the things that I would like to do finally 
is is uh, you know I, I always thought that sort of this notion of pure NKS pure and NKS being the acronym for my book New Kind of Science mm-hmm. um, was uh, was something that people should be doing and and you know we tried to figure out what's the right institutional structure to do this stuff you know we mm-hmm. we dealt with a bunch of universities oh you know can we do this here well what department would it be in it well it isn't in a department it's it's yeah. its own new kind of thing that's why that's why the book was called a new kind of science mm-hmm. um it's kind of the the because that's an increasingly good description of what it is so to speak we're actually we we're, were thinking about kind of the ruleological society because we we're, we're realizing that it's kind Love of it. It's it's um you know there's a there's a, it's very it's very interesting. I mean I've never really done something like this before because there's this whole group of researchers who are who've been doing things that are really, in some cases, very elegant, very surviving, very solid. You know, here's this thing that happens in this very abstract system, but it's like it's like what is that part of? You know, it it's, it doesn't have a a home. And I think that's something I, I, you know, I kind of fault myself for not having been more, you know, when complexity was developing in the eighties, I didn't understand the 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 danger of applications. That is, it's really cool that you can apply this to economics and you can apply it to evolutionary biology and this and that and the other. But what happens with applications is everything gets sucked into the applications mm-hmm. and the pure stuff. It's like the pure mathematics. There isn't any pure mathematics, so to speak. It's all just applications of mathematics. Mm-hmm. And I, I failed to kind of make sure that this kind of pure area was was kind of um, maintained and 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 developed. And I think now, you know, one of the things I I want to try to do, and and you know, it's a funny thing because I'm used to look. I've been a, a tech CEO for more than half my life now. So you know, this is what I know how to do, and um, you know, I can I can make stuff happen. And get projects to happen, even as it turns out, basic science projects in that kind of setting, and and how that translates into kind of uh, you know there are a lot of people working on, for example, our physics project sort of distributed through the academic world, and that's working just great. But the question is, you know, can we have a sort of accelerator mechanism that makes use of kind of what we've learnt in in sort of R and D innovation, and you know, but on the other hand, it's a funny thing because you know in a company, in the end, the thing. Is you know it's a company. It makes products. It sells things. Sells things to people. Um, in you know when you're doing basic research, one of the challenges is there isn't that same kind of mm-hmm. of sort of mechanism. Mm-hmm. And so it's 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 you know how do you drive the thing in a in a kind of a, in a lead kind of way so that it really can can make forward progress rather than you know what can often happen in you know in in academic settings where it's like well there are all these flowers blooming but it's not clear. That yeah. the, the you know that it's the you have to have a to. central mission and a drive just like you do with the company that's delivering a big overarching product and right. that's that's uh, but the the challenge is you know when you have a, a the, the 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 economics of the world are such that you know when you're delivering a product and people say well that's useful we'll buy it mm-hmm. and then that kind of feeds back and yep. okay then you can then you can pay the people who build it to eat you know so they can eat and so on mm-hmm. and with basic science. The the payoff is very much less visible, yeah. and and you know with this physics project, as I say, the big surprise has been that I mean, you know, for example, well, the big surprise with the physics project is that it looks like it has near term applications, and I was like, I'm guessing this is 200 years away. It, it's um, I was kind of using the analogy of of you know Newton uh, starting a satellite launch company, which would have been kind of wrong time. Um, and uh, you know, but but it turns out that's not the case. But but we can't guarantee that. And if you say we're signing up to do basic research, basic ruleology, let's say, 
and you know and we can't we don't know the horizon you know it's a, it's an unknown horizon it's kind of like an undecidable kind of proposition of when is this proof going to end so to speak when is it going to be something that that uh, that gets supplied well i i hope this is this becomes a vibrant new field of rheology i love it like i told you many many times it's one of uh the most amazing ideas that has been brought to this world so i hope you uh get a bunch of people to explore this world Thank you once again for spending your really valuable time with me today. Fun stuff. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Stephen Wolfram. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, let me leave you with some words from Richard Feynman. Nature uses only the longest threads to weave her patterns. So each small piece of her fabric reveals the organization of the entire tapestry. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.